Hey everybody, welcome back to Gray Malkin Lane's newest trial. This is always my favorite episode of the month to record. I get to uh, become a little mini expert on a particular character that I have not given thought to in this type of way before. And this month we get to do the incredible character Sunfire. Sunfire is a character I've always been a little bit fond of, but uh, it's really interesting to read his chronology all the way through. He has a lot of interesting complications and the time periods in which he's uh, uh, introduced are always fascinating in uh, their interpretation as we see things change for the company. I am thrilled to be joined by this all-star incredible jury. I uh, I contacted each of you individually months ago, and I was so thrilled that you were willing to spend your valuable Sunday time with me today. Thank you all for being here. I'll let each of the jury members introduce themselves briefly, but let me introduce Sunfire really quickly. Sunfire is uh, Shiro Yoshida. Uh, Marvel Comics gained its first prominence in the days before World War II. You've seen the image of Captain America punching Adolf Hitler right in the face. This was during a time of national pride, America first, with young boys signing themselves up for war so they could be the ultimate heroes, a soldier. There were a lot of other kinds of stories being told in this era about cops and spies and monster hunters, but it was the soldier that inspired the feelings of patriotism and heroism in the target readers of the book, who were the young American white kids at home spending their dimes for a cartoon book at the candy shop. Boys in this generation love to have something to unite against. After all, what's a cowboy without an Indian, a cop without a robber? And what's an American soldier without a German or a Japanese foe to punch? Readers thrilled in seeing their heroes triumph against the cartoon caricatures of Japanese soldiers, colored literally yellow sometimes, with exaggerated slanted eyes. These Japanese soldiers were often portrayed as conniving, deadly, and ultimately cowardly. Onto the 1950s, Marvel and other comic book companies turned some of these characters into full-fledged prominent supervillains, all portrayed in deeply racist and problematic ways. The Mandarin and the Yellow Claw, both of these characters are Chinese, are right at the top of the list, and these characters will feature into the trial a little bit later. Then in August of uh, 1945, the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, killing hundreds of thousands of people and spreading disease and devastation to so many more. And then for many years, comics themselves grew obsessed with the idea of the massive radiation bomb. Ever heard of the Incredible Hulk? Uh, Fantastic Four number one ends with a bomb going off on Monster Island. And in the earliest X-Men comics, we see references to bombs and radiation in the origins of several characters, from Professor X to Beast to Grotesque. And then we have Sunfire. Sunfire was created in X-Men number 64 by Roy Thomas and Don Heck. Uh, in 1969, 24 years after the bombs were dropped. Shiro Yoshida represents a story quite unlike that of any other mutant character. And we're going to talk a lot about him today. So, Gray Malkin Lane presents The Trial of Shiro Yoshida. I'm thrilled to be joined by five prolific, incredible, insightful friends that I've been fortunate to meet through this show. Uh, and I'm so honored to have each of you here today. Let me have each of you introduce yourselves. Uh, let us know your names your gender pronouns, uh, where we might know you from. And then I would love to hear uh, some of your initial thoughts on Sunfire before you began your research for this show. What was your level of exposure uh, to this character? Uh, let's begin with my dear friend, Trung Nian. It's good to see you, Trung. Hi, it's good to see you. I'm always happy to chat with you on Gray Malkin. This is fun. Um, hello, uh, my name is Trung Ling Nguyen. I am a comic author and artist. I'm best known for my graphic novel, The Magic Fish. Oh, sorry, my pronouns are he, him, and they, them. Um, and uh, for Marvel fans, I think my 
my closest exposure to the Marvel universe is correcting uh, the um, Vietnamese character Karma, um, Karma's name, uh, so that it's a little bit more aligned uh, with the actual Vietnamese language. And I got to write and draw a short story of hers um, on um, uh, Marvel Unlimited called Karma and Love. So that's kind of how I fit in here. <laughs> uh, what are your initial thoughts on Sunfire? Uh, my initial thoughts on Sunfire, uh, he's not a character that I have ever been fond of. I have been peripherally aware of Sunfire, but what I'm sort of discovering in talking to, you know, just like other Asian nerds in the comic space is that oftentimes classic superheroes that come from like Asian nations uh, that have long histories with Marvel or DC are often not our favorite characters because they're temp they're typically kind of born out of this sort of um, jingoistic space. And so it's really difficult to uh, commit ourselves to the character's entire history because they're frequently uh, capital B bad. Um, I think Karma is actually sort of unique in that in spite of her name kind of like being uh, not quite correct, like grammatically, the character herself actually has a pretty good kind of history in terms of like the way that she was written and the way that Claremont had envisioned her. And so kind of going back through her history, that was really cool. And then getting to like some of the other characters like Sunfire, I'm just like, oh, there's a lot of, this is very messy. So I'm, I'm really thrilled to be able to chat about Sunfire and hear more perspectives about him from a panel of other Asian nerds. I'm, uh, I'm so happy you and I've had a chance to talk about Karma a lot. You've increased my understanding of that character a lot. And I think I'm going to learn a lot about Sunfire today. I'm so happy you are here. Uh, let's go over to Andrew Drillon next. Andrew, so good to see you. Um, so, yeah, my name is Andrew Drillon. Uh, pronouns are he, him. I'm a cartoonist from the Philippines. Um, I did the national award winning uh, indie book. Uh, Kara Kara Comics, and um, I'm usually more known for doing um, indie books, but this past year, I started doing work for DC Comics, most recently in DC Pride. I did a Batwoman um, Spirit World crossover story, uh, and I was in DC Shazamily Matters. And coming up on December 12th, I'll be in the DC Holiday Special, Twas the Might Before Christmas, and we're bringing back a... Um, uh, a, an underappreciated teen titan named Bunker. And I'm bringing him back with um, writer Josh Trujillo. We've got a really awesome um, story lined up for him. And um, yeah, check that out when you can. Josh is a dear friend of mine. I'm thrilled you guys are working together. You guys may also know Andrew from uh, doing this incredible print of the Ungarai on my wall right there. Andrew, what are your initial thoughts on uh, Sunfire? Um, so Sunfire, I so I'm I'm a lifelong reader of X-Men, and Sunfire is actually very low on my radar. Um, which is sad, but you know, that's just the truth of it. Um, I, I think he's always been kind of in the margins of X-Men history. Um, he was part of that big Krakoa group, which um, you know, we all know from from the, the classic Claremont story. Um but um, he left shortly after, so he kind of just like never got a moment. And I feel like um, it's weird because he's one of those characters that I feel has the burden of having to represent an entire country. Um, and I think that is always prob always leads to big problems um, when that happens, especially when you don't give them enough space to sort of explore what makes them unique outside of like the symbolism and the themes um, that may be popular about that that world. Um, that said, um, 
my favorite version of Sunfire is the Age of Apocalypse version and that awesome Joe Madureira design with the, you know, sort of energy look and the the um, the red dot on his um, forehead. Um, and, you know, that's that's the visual that I stick with. I think he his strongest aspect is, you know, the visuals that come with the various costumes he come through. Uh, he's done worn over the years. Um, but that also, again, um, leads to some questions. So I'm eager to dig into this um, as we move forward. Uh, this is exciting. Uh, Japan is interesting. One of those, interestingly enough, one of those countries at Marvel that gets the most attention. Uh, I mean, America is there always, right? But Japan, uh, Russia, and and I think England are probably the countries that get used the most in continuity. Uh, and the portrayal of Japan has a lot of problems in it over the years, obviously. Uh, but the X-Men have a lot of history there as well. Uh, let's go over to my friend Jason Lowe next, who has a century coming up so soon. I'm so excited. Hi, yeah, my name is uh, Jason Lowe. Uh, my pronouns are uh, he, him. Uh, people might know me for my work on X-Men Unlimited, uh, like the misadventures with Multiple Men and Strong Guy. Um, I've dabbled into the Spider-Verse by introducing Spider-Friend. Um, also dabbled in with the Venomverse. And yeah, I, I got a, a new uh, series debut coming up, which is The Century, where I'm introducing a, a bunch of new characters and we're going to have a bunch of people we're, we're going to have the fans guessing on who's going to be the new century. I'm so excited for this. Uh what are your initial thoughts on uh on Sunfire, Jason? Um yeah, he he's a uh, a character, I mean like yeah, just like almost everyone here like we were childhood fans of X-Men, but you know as as uh as an Asian being another another Asian character like Sunfire I, I mean, he was a character that was like kind of just there, and like when you read his stories, like he didn't really have any like likable qualities. Like he was just, he was just a very rude, hot-tempered guy, and I, it was just kind of hard for me to connect with him. That you know, I, I was glad that I grew up in a time when Jubilee was there, so she was like my characters that I would lean towards as Asian representation who I can really connect with, uh, especially for someone who uh, is a first-generation North American Asian. Um, th that's why I, I gravitated more towards Jubilee more so than than Sunfire. Um, but, you know, I, I'm loving where um, his the direction of this character has gone uh, especially with the with the new um, X Men Unlimited story that that Steve Fox and Steve Orlando are doing, like he, he's now a very redeemable character that that um, I can definitely root for now. He's a phenomenal character. We're going to talk about their recent work, uh, obviously, as part of today's portrayal, but it's so good. And great to see you, uh, Jason. Uh, let's go over next to a friend I got to meet in real life very recently at the Uncanny Experience, uh, Steve DeGee. Hi, Steve. How are you? Hello, Chad. Hello, everybody. Hello, esteemed jurors. This, this, it's an honor to be here. Uh, so uh, name, gender pronouns, uh, oh. where we might know you from, and then uh, your thoughts on Sunfire. Uh, so my name is Steve DeGee, a.k.a. Stevie Crack. Uh, pronouns are he, him. 
Um, places you might know me from, Chad kind of alluded to it, but you probably don't know me from being online because I don't talk to strangers online. <laughs> <laughs> mostly kidding, mostly kidding. But um, if you have seen me, you've probably seen me around Minnesota in like activist spaces or like uh, various like gyms and martial arts spaces or from just being Filipino around the way. So it's just like I'm a very in-person type of person. Um, again, it's great to be here. Um, and initial thoughts on Sunfire. I guess I echo a lot of the same things that other people have said, like Sunfire was always just like there, not really much depth to really like cling on to. But I remember there was one uh, online discussion in like an X-Men posting group where it was like, describe the X-Men as who, what they would be like on social media. And my answer was like, Sunfire and Namor are both arguing with trolls sincerely in the comments section. So that's kind of like what how the space he occupied in my head prior to this um, this trial. Sure, sure. It's great to see you, Stephen. Thank you for uh, joining us today. Uh, lastly, my real life friend and online friend, Justin Park, uh, upon whom I relied so heavily on the preparation of my notes here. Justin is a resident expert on Sunfire, having done this character with Connor Goldsmith on Cerebro. Uh, Justin, welcome back to Grand Malkin Lane. Good to see you. Hi, Chad. Good to see you again as well. Um, yeah. Hi, I'm Justin. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. Uh, for my day job, I'm a video game developer currently at Kitten Cup Studio. And yeah, people who listen to gay X-Men podcasts may have heard me on Cerebro, as well as the other Sunfire episode of this podcast. Um, where I guess I didn't do so bad of a job that I got disinvited from this one. So uh, uh, that's that. the X Men sixty four with Fabian Nicieza. With Fabian Nicieza and Caroline, of course. And Caroline cosplay, yes, yes, uh, such a fun group. Um, but yeah, uh, initial thoughts on Sunfire? Oh gosh, I mean, <laughs> I've definitely gone on a bit of a journey with this character. I feel like I've at various points kind of like echoed your guys' initial thoughts of feelings about this character, where sort of he's just like kind of been there. He's like the Asian guy, but like you haven't really felt a deep emotional connection to him just because he's Asian, that kind of thing. Um, but you know, after reading his entire publication history, so maybe a couple of times at this point, um, I think. A couple things. One, I do think he is important, like representationally and like historically, the fact that he is this Silver Age X-Men character that has been around for so long and like has persisted in being here. Um, he's like sort of kind of a signifier of the fact that like we have always been here um, for better or for worse, which is what a lot of Sunfire's publication history consists of, sort of the pitfalls or the double-edged sword of visibility of Asianness or like that Asian aesthetic in Western comics specifically. He's also, I think, a really important example of, you know, when we're evaluating these comics and maybe, you know, putting characters on trial, thinking about like the people behind the comics versus the characters themselves, like who is to take responsibility for some of the things that happen on page, right? In terms of the character itself, I find him to be a fun character, especially in the more modern incarnations, for sure. Like, he's got this kind of confidence and arrogance and, like, flamboyance about him that I find, like, fun to read, even if I wouldn't necessarily want to spend time with him. Like, I like a hot asshole character, like the Namor type, you know? Um, and for all of the Orientalist, like shit and is can we swear on this one i forget absolutely we, you can swear we, we can swear on this one yeah Fuck um for yeah. all of the orientalist <laughs> shit in this past um there are like a few tropes that he subverts as well and i'm interested in exploring those as well 
Uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he/him pronouns. Uh, uh, so this character, I was reading comics first in the mid '90s, and I, I remember experiencing Sunfire as the character they kept trying to make happen. He was like Horseman of Apocalypse, and then Age of Apocalypse. Then he was like in Alpha Flight, and then in Big Hero Six. But he just kind of never stuck around anywhere. I think he's not a character I gave a lot of thought to, although I did love him in Age of Apocalypse. He was very D-list for me in the way that like Leonard Sampson or Misty Knight might be. Like characters I'm fond of, but they just don't show up that often. Uh, and Sunfire until recent years in Krakoa like made me pay a lot more attention to him. Uh, reading him front to back in this way was fascinating. So let's begin with his introduction, which comes at a wild time. It's a very unexpected story right at the end of the first volume of X-Men. X-Men number 64, the book is canceled at 66, or goes into reprints for several years afterward. The cover of this book shows a new character, Sunfire, blazing through the sky in front of the United States Capitol building. His arm is stretched over the X-Men logo, and fire is bursting out of his hand. You open up to page one, and we get a massive full-body shot of this man. The logo announces the coming of Sunfire, and the word Sunfire is on fire itself with deep orange at the bottom, the colors growing lighter as they rise in fiery tendrils. He's adorned in the colors and design of the Japanese imperial flag, the rising sun. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. Sunfire's mask is almost lizard-like. It's pulled over his eyes with reds and oranges and a fire emblem over the skull cap and more fire over his gloves and boots. The suit is head-to-toe red with bold white stripes across the torso. It's unforgettable and problematic, but it turns out that this kind of works for the character because Sunfire seems to spend his entire history searching for the right purpose. Is he a mutant with nearly unlimited potential blazing with the fire of the sun itself? Is he the national hero of Japan, a divided Japan, one where his father and his uncle raised him not to know which one was the right way, fierce nationalism or peaceful uh, peaceful alliance? And again, we'll talk more about that in a minute. And who is he outside of his power and his country? Who is Shiro Yoshida? Uh, one more thing we learn about Sunfire on page one, he is arrogant in capital letters. He's, his first line of dialogue is he stands on a rooftop looking at the American civilians below. Uh, he, he yells, ants! This is a land of ants, of smug and smirking insects, but soon they shall know the ominous tread of sunfire. So he doesn't like Americans much, we get very quickly. Uh, Side note, in Rogue number seven, we get to hear Shiro's answering machine message in which he says, you've reached the private line of Shiro Yoshida. This had better be important. Beep. So (laughs) there's a through line for this guy. We soon meet Sunfire's father, Saburo Yoshida. He's famous, a great statesman, and he's in Washington, D.C. to dedicate a monument to the youth of the world. He represents indirectly modern Japan, as seen in the 1960s, a wise politician building relationships with the world beyond. But Shiro, in his masked identity of Sunfire, thinks his father a sniveling, spineless fool. He publicly calls his father a traitor and burns a statue to the ground in a fiery blast while yelling, you are a nation of weaklings, of cowards. Within a few pages, we learn how complicated Shiro Yoshida is. In addition to all of the sensitivity around the war and the bombs and the national identity of Japan, there's another major thing to consider. Despite most Americans' comics portrayals of Japan as a long-defeated former enemy in this time period, Japan does have a history of military aggression, particularly during the 19th and 20th century in East and Southeast Asia. Takeovers of entire countries, slaughters of entire peoples, all under the banner of the imperial flag, the rising sun. Uh, 
Before those horrific bombings we talked about, Japan had allied themselves with Hitler's Germany and Stalin's Italy. They brought America into the war with the bombing of Pearl Harbor. I'm oversimplifying some very complex issues here, but this is a very fraught and complicated time in world history. So bear with me more on this in just a moment. Shiro's mother died in childbirth, and after the bombing of Hiroshima, having been affected by the fallout of the atomic blast and, quote, made a hopeless invalid, end quote, a more modern retelling, by the way, puts Shiro's grandfather in the blast instead, because sliding time scales, we can only be so old. Uh, because many years, uh, we are led to believe that Shiro's mutant powers are directly connected to this blast. And because many years later, his uncle Tomo Yashida took him to the ruins in Hiroshima, where Shiro took the ruined soil in his hands and his mutant powers activated that moment. The powers of the fiery sun itself within his core, at his fingertips. And in this key moment in Shiro's life, his uncle makes him speak the sacred oath that he has taught Shiro in secret since childhood. Because you see, Tomo Yoshida has an active hand in Shiro's upbringing, possibly due to Saburo's work as a statesman, keeping him busy, taking him out of the country. Tomo hates Saburo and differs from him politically. Tomo believes in imperial Japan. So anyway, the oath Shiro recites on the days that his powers activate is this. I shall avenge the incalculable wrong done my people in this place these many years ago. I shall smite the eternal en enemy, humble him, with all the vast powers at my command. So do I, Shiro Yoshida, swear. Tomo then spent weeks training Shiro to use his powers, keeping it a secret from Saburo. And then he gave him the imperial flag costume that Shiro would hold on to for many years, telling him to wear our ancient colors. Shiro was brought up to see Americans as the enemy. And he saw his father, the statesman, as a traitor for being willing to work with the Americans. Now, much later in continuity, we see Shiro as a citizen on Krakoa. It's a new country he can believe in. He seems himself as a mutant first, someone with unreached potential. More on this later. But for more of his story, he was the son of these two father figures. And only one, Tomo, gave him much attention. Saburo was off working while Tomo made Shiro feel important, like he had potential, and gave him a cause to dedicate himself to. And thus the son of the moralistic absent father, the mother who died in childbirth while bringing Shiro into the world, and also the son of the American-hating uncle with imperialistic beliefs. So he's a product of all of these. Back on X-Men 64, Tomo instructs Shiro to attack the United States Capitol building during Saburo's public address, and Shiro, to impress his uncle, yells, Today the soft and the decadent shall tremble, as they did decades before, before the symbol of the rising sun. He's in his sunfire costume. And Saburo, his father, walks in, sees Shiro in the costume, and slaps him across the face. Saburo screams at Shiro about how the old quarrels are dead. He accused his son of treason, called him ungrateful, and this solidified Shiro's plan to do exactly as Tomo instructed, to burn the United States Capitol building to the ground. But Shiro was conflicted, even as he was fighting the X-Men earlier. Before it was over, Shiro saw Tomo murder Saburo with a gun, and then Shiro, in a harsh gut reaction, killed Tomo in a burst of fire. As Shiro fell to his knees in front of the Capitol building that he hadn't destroyed, in the land of his enemies, his two fathers both dead in seconds of each other, the X-Men slowly walk away, leaving their fellow mutant in his grief. Saburo's last words to Shiro live only for the future, Shiro, not for the past. Forge the tools of peace from the chains of war. I know this is a long intro, everybody. Thank you for being patient. Now, here's something we need to establish right away in one serious discussion. Sunfire was created by white American professionals 
and he spent most of his career wearing a costume emblazoned with the rising sun flag in the way that Captain America is in the Stars and Stripes or Captain Britain in the Union Jack. And flags mean something. The rising sun flag is a big red circle with extending red rays on a white background. And it was made in the 1600s by feudal warlords. And in the late 1800s, it was adopted as their flag. And it was under this banner that Imperial Japan invaded, conquered, or killed in other countries. While we may not delve into the full extent of the war crimes committed by the Imperial Japanese Army in this episode, it's worth looking into to fully understand why this flag may provoke such a visceral reaction, especially to people in the East and Southeast Asia. As we've already established, Japan allied itself with Hitler during World War II, so for a lot of people, the rising sun is akin to the swastika. It's also worth noting that Japan's current national flag, the red circle on the white banner, was also in use at this time, so but the it was not the original or the uh, the official national flag, which makes the choice to use specifically the rising sun, sun flag uh, significant, almost akin to the Confederate flag in the states, although that is not an apt comparison. Again, this is a vast oversimplification, but this all adds to the conflict and complexity of Sunfire's origins. So, to be fair to Sunfire's creators, I don't believe they saw the rising sun in the same way at the same time, and they do give Shiro a relatively sympathetic origin story that. Ends ends with him killing the uncle who gave him the flag costume in the first place. The primary public protests against the use of the Rising Sun flag started uh, being more widely known in America, at least around 2011. Part of the reason that the controversy with the flag reoccurs is due to the Japanese government's inconsistent record on properly acknowledging, recognizing, and making reparations for the war crimes committed under this flag. It's also important to keep in mind that these are relatively recent events, especially to a lot of people in East and Southeast Asia, and some of whom are living survivors of imperial Japanese rule. But due in large part to these protests, it's been banned in certain places, removed in others. It is an integral part of understanding the character of Shiro Yashida. So that's a, a long introduction to his first appearance, but I wanted to get all of that in one place so we can talk about it for a little while. Let me hear your thoughts on the first appearance of Sunfire. I will say this for like in terms of like uh, pride in your heritage, pride in your um, background, uh, ethnic background, national national background, etc. I mean, I'm guessing that a lot of us grew up with the question, "What are you?" Which is like, um, which is me. I'm Filipino. I'll, I'll throw, force that in conversation without even being asked. But I've always liked that question myself because it gives me a chance to share a part of my identity that I take pride in. So that's that's the positive part of it, right? But people who don't take the same, who don't view that same question and answer with the same type of pride, it can be turned into a thing of division, which will be in which when uh uh, partnered with systems of power, it can be turned uh, as a tool for division, and that us versus them tribalism can then be a tool to uh, garner power. So I think that's kind of like what we're falling into with this, um, with him using the rising, uh, uh, the rising sun flag, is that, yeah, he's like he's Japanese as fuck. I remember I did a, I did a questionnaire where they asked me how do you identify and i just put i'm filipino as fuck so it feels like the same thing like he's just like repping that japanese to the fullest but he's you like there's so much to japanese culture he ends up using the like the most divisive imagery for it so it does feed into the whole systems of power imperialist nationalism 
instead of being like one of the more um, widely acceptable symbols of Japan, which he has every right to rep for his identity and his pride, he like he's he like the story had him turn towards a more divisive form of that national ultra nationalistic pride. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can if I can just follow up on that. I mean, yeah, I 100% agree that there is so much more to Japan than like the flag that Sunfire is wearing. And it's really important and good to recognize that as well. I also do want to Again, this is where sort of like examining the character in universe as well as like as a character in text is really important, right? Because like when you're viewing him as a character that you are reading, I think keeping in mind these like, like you said, relatively recent real world atrocities should kind of always take precedence, right? Like there are some people that are just never going to be okay with this character because of the flag that he wore. Even if he doesn't currently wear it anymore, they're just not down for him. And like, that's 100% okay. Um, and I guess I apologize in advance to those people if I'm like a little bit too easy on their character going forward because I feel like I might be. Um, but yeah, other than that, like as a character himself, like you mentioned, Chad, like the origin story is surprisingly sympathetic. I think part of the journey that I went on was because like I had seen the character, I had seen him in this suit and I kind of just like, you know, made those connections in my head. Like that's the flag that he's wearing. He's like the flag suit hero of Japan. And he starts off as like a villain. I kind of figured like that was the gist of his story. But then reading the issue for the first time, I'm like, oh, okay, there's like a little bit more here than I expected, especially for like a comic published in the West in like 1970, I want to say. Um, and so for him, it, it feels like the cause of Japanese nationalism is less about like actual real world political issues and more just like his personal issues with his family, right? Like, I don't know that he like goes out of his way to choose a divisive symbol, but it is more that like it is the one that has been presented to him by this father figure, one of the only father figures that he's known. And he kind of like, he kind of accepts it. Like, you know, he's not thinking that critically i suppose is probably how i would put it in this case to just like put on this costume and like start you know trying to burn down uh buildings in washington dc um but yeah i guess that's sort of how i think of his origin story so yeah, yeah like i i i found uh Cheryl to be like a, a very misguided teen um like I, I, I wonder if there were ever stories, uh, where we explored his childhood, like before he was brainwashed by his imperialistic national, nationalistic uh, uncle. Um, because yeah, he he kind of just, just went with it and really committed to you know wearing the costume and 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 just being this just uh realistic a-hole <laughs> uh andrew so so my grandfather um would always tell me this story about when he was young um he was um he, he basically he lived in the province and the village in bataan in the philippines and um at one point um they were told that the japanese were coming this was in world war ii um, and basically they came over and um, made everyone march to their deaths. Um, this was the Bataan Death March. And during this period, um, 
if you look at pictures of the time, they were literally using that um, rising sun image. Um, uh, I say that uh, because, you know, I do want to like jump into the whole idea of like that being triggering imagery. Um, however, um, looking at this story, I feel like it's um, it's kind of well managed because because the way it's presented is as sort of like a family legacy. It's someone else's idea of like, you know, how things should be. And um, as a character, if we just, you know, can if we can look at it from, you know, um, from the present, it, it's like um, it, he's just like a young kid who's trying to find his purpose in the world and is easily convinced by someone with like a strong philosophy. Um, you know, and I think in the future, this happens over and over for him, which is an interesting sort of like character um, thing going. Uh, so, yeah, all that said, I actually quite like the idea of his introduction. I like that it is um, rooted in a lot of problematic ideas and problematic um, issues that people deal with. I think that's one of the strengths of X-Men which is when you have a lot of, you know, these characters and, you know, comics, comics are tricky because uh, especially superhero comics, you can't burden them with like too much because they're technically adventure stories and they have to sort of have a, a certain levity to them. Um, so it can't go too deep into it. But when you lace it with this kind of reality, it helps you sort of digest, you know, a little bit about history, a little bit about the world out there that you might not otherwise have thought about or been exposed to. So, um, yeah, that's I'm OK with with, you know, his his opening and origin. Trump? Um, well, you know, I, I have really complicated feelings about it, but I think um, uh, per uh, what Justin mentioned earlier, it's really helpful to discuss the character within the context of his, his creation and also as a character in the text. And so um, my feelings about the character in the text are like are actually largely positive. Um, I don't really enjoy the X-Men comics from the in the 70s. Um, so Marvel's comics in the 70s is not like it's not my bag entirely, but him as a character and his arc is something that I actually rather enjoy. Um, one of the um one of the things that um really sticks with me, like my I'm I'm Vietnamese, and so my history with Japan is very, very limited. Like they did occupy Vietnam, but like for less than a year. <laughs> so it was so it's very <laughs> Justin is laughing. <laughs> um, do do yeah, we so all need to go like rank ourselves by the right. amount of time yeah. that Japan is? Yeah, okay. like, <laughs> like by nationality, what is our level of devastation in terms of our relationship to Imperial Japan? <laughs> and Vietnam ranks like fairly low on that scale. Um, but my parents were children in the aftermath of the Vietnam War. And so they were alive during the repatriation. And my dad grew up in the new economic zones, which are like a humanitarian crisis that we, you know, are seeing more of nowadays, unfortunately. Um, but one of the things that he would tell me about it was that the soldiers who went to like kind of essentially kidnap his family and move them out into the jungle in the 70s were all very young. They were like 14 to 17 year old boys. And so one of the things that he kind of always really holds to him is that disaffected young men are very easily led to do terrible things by anyone with a strong ideology, anyone with any amount of charisma. And so as a character who's looking for a sense of purpose, who is uncertain about where his allegiances 
kind of brush up against his philosophical, like personal beliefs. He's a very interesting character. Um, now, outside of the text, uh, one of the things that I, I tend to like to think about is the 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 notion of how this character exists, like as an Asian character, apart from us who are kind of like Western diasporic, largely identities. And so the notion of the what are you question is never something that will ever apply to, to Sunfire because he's a Japanese national. He is the hegemony where he is. And so he's not going to be like, we're not going to connect with him on that level. The expectation that we're supposed to connect with him on that level is a little bit racist. <laughs> um, but like, it's it's still fun to, to kind of figure out like how in this time we're sort of positioned as being conflated with this character with sort of like this trope, this sort of Orientalist trope of like having dual allegiances, even though he's a Japanese national, he has one allegiance, except for when he got to Krakow, but that's an entirely different part of his trajectory. So I think that that kind of wraps up my thoughts on on his introduction. Uh, J. Michael Straczynski and uh, Rick Remender both have had an approach with Captain America where they're showing him in modern times, but they'll flash back to his childhood and like the Depression or pre-World War II years to kind of show the development of his heroism. I would love a Sunfire series in that way. I would love to see the right writer balancing his current mission with the lessons and conflicts he had between his two father figures. Uh, he's a really he's a really interesting uh, character to me, and I think the right storytellers could really flesh him out. Uh, I meant to say this before I started today, but I am the white guy in the room, and I absolutely own that. I'm a clinical social worker. I work hard on clinical uh, and cultural competency. And when I approach the show, when it's any culturally sensitive issue, I try to invite the right people and have the right level of cultural competency. But if I have said something incorrect or <laughs> typed something wrong, anyone who's on this panel or anyone who's listening, you are more than welcome to call me out or challenge any premises that I have as I put this together as the white guy in the room. So I, I just wanted to say that out loud. Uh, I am uh, I am okay to be challenged. Okay, we're going to continue our discussion here. Over time, Marvel's portrayal of Japanese characters has grown increasingly complex. There are entire fictional Asian countries in Marvel's lexicon that are widely explored and quite complex, but Claremont loves Japan, and thus so does Wolverine. And of course, Sunfire is related to at least a few of the people that uh, Wolverine loves a lot. Uh, we have the Silver Samurai and Yukio and Mariko Yashida. Uh, the Hand is there. Sunfire has connections uh, as a member of the clan Yoshida to a very complicated and fictional uh, roots in Japan that spread 2,000 years back into Japanese history, and they are frequently uh, associated with profitable, profitable criminal ventures in the modern era. So this means that the crime lord Shingen Harada is Sunfire's uncle and Mariko Yoshida and uh, Kenwichio. Harada, if I'm saying these names correctly, uh, are his cousins. He also has a half-sister through his father, uh, Leo Yoshida, or Sun Pyre, who appeared six times and then died. We won't talk about her today, but she has a very similar power set. Uh, very little is known about her connection to Shiro. Uh, Shiro's character portrayal has altered over the years as his stories, almost entirely crafted by white men, wrote him basically based on the modern portrayals and obsessions with Japanese culture. So he has his dark crime family era and his anime-inspired Big Hero 6 era. And one word that is often used to describe him, especially in the early years, is samurai. Uh, sometimes he's called the atomic samurai. 
After the loss of his fathers and his return to Japan, Sunfire soon pledged himself to a little-known mutant named the Dragon Lord, uh, Katsuo Sasaki, who was blind and had superhuman senses like Daredevil style. Uh, Katsuo believed himself the last of the war barons, and Sunfire the last of the samurais. Uh, Katsuo also has a vast army and is ready to be emperor, and Shira was looking for a cause to believe in. So we're going to cover this part in the trial as well, but I mention it here because it moves Sunfire into his next major problematic portrayal. A war baron is a reference to the old feudal warlords of Japan from centuries ago, often called the daimyo. Again, I don't know if my pronunciation is quite right here. These men used harsh tactics to take, maintain, and protect their land. And they had military units to protect their lands. Among them are samurai, well-paid trained warriors who were well-respected, who acted as defenders and sometimes assassins. The honorable ones followed the codes of Bushiro. And among the rules they maintained related to this honor, the right of seppuku. If the hero fails in his mission for his master, he would draw his blade and place it into his own abdomen. And note that right away that Sunfire has been suicidal more than once and has expressed a desire to commit seppuku on the page. Uh, this shit ended centuries ago. Maybe it's a clan Yashida thing or leftover fuckery from Tomo in his mind, but it's a weird thing to reconcile. Uh, for many years in the comics, Sunfire has considered himself the national hero of Japan in that costume that he wears, and he considers failure for his country unacceptable. One time, Sunfire got his legs amputated, and Rogue spent time with him uh, with his powers and his memories. Listen to this interchange between them. It led me to see my true strength, says Sunfire, that I could rise again after the bottomless pit. It fills me with great pride. Rogue says, well, I don't think pride's anything you were ever lacking, sugar. And Sunfire says, I have had to fight every inch of my life, and I am proud of what I have come through. I, I didn't mean that as an insult. Of course you did. You all love to chide me for my honor with no mind to what I have suffered. I remain the proud protector of my homeland, the greatest nation of Earth, even if they have forgotten me. And Rogue says, all that time you were stuck in my head, I know better than anyone. I know you had to become fierce or your father would have crushed you. I know how unappreciated and looked down upon you feel and the anger it leads to. I know what you've been through and you impress the hell out of me, Shiro. Uh, okay, so now that my terrible accent work is done, let me hear some of your thoughts uh, on this section of uh, Shiro's history. Um, yeah, I can go. Um, I do really like that last exchange. I have a weird fondness for Rogue and Sunfire and their interactions together, which come up surprisingly often. Um, I always describe it as like they're really good friends because they both think that they're smarter than the other, but they're somehow both wrong, if that makes sense. Um, but Rogue is also the best fag hag. A hundred percent. Yeah, like Rogue and Sunfire have kissed, which is how you know he's gay. Anyway, <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get to that. <clears throat> um, but yeah, no, I do think that this exchange says a lot about Sunfire and that primarily the fact that like he sees himself as a protector. And he also recognizes that sometimes he's really bad at it. And we will talk about that in the trial, I'm sure. Um, but that is like sort of always what he's trying to do. And like that little bit of like he remains the, prote the protector of his land, even if they've forgotten me. Like in many ways, that is sort of the thesis of the X-Men, right? Like protecting and fighting for a world that has like that fears and hates you. Right. And in that particular way, I think he does kind of embody the spirit of the X-Men as like a fictional character, at least. 
Um, in terms of like problematic Orientalist tropes that has applied to him, I feel like this is sort of where we get into, this is more of like a general question, I think, and one that never really has an easy answer, but like the idea of, especially with these characters that are a little bit historical, that have existed for a long time, like statistically, they've had some, they have to have some sort of like Orientalist trope or like weird shit in their past. And then the question becomes like, does that mean that they're like beyond sort of redemption or that we sort of like throw the baby out with the bathwater as the expression goes? This is... You know, like there's no right answer ever, right? But I do think that for better or for worse, sometimes representation also means like addressing and adding to and maybe fixing and maybe not fixing or at least trying to fix stuff that has happened in the past. And I think Sunfire is an example of that. Whether or not it's successful is something that we'll sort of have to see as things, you know, like we sort of see what sticks in his more modern comics portrayals, I suppose. Um, but there have definitely been attempts, and I, I do appreciate that. Thoughts on the title, The Atomic Samurai? For me specifically, um, I mean, like, it's kind of nonsense. Um, like, the samurai, like, calling anyone from Asia a samurai is just kind of a thing that happens. He doesn't even use a sword. I don't actually know if that's, like, a thing that is a requirement for samurais even. But either way, he doesn't do it. And Atomic doesn't really mean anything in this context either. Um, there is like a funny joke in the Grant Morrison new X-Men about how when he talks about like how he uses his like special nuclear powers and like no one really knows what that means. I'm happy for him to just have regular fire powers. That said, it is like kind of a, I don't know, like the phrase sounds nice, even if you think about it for a second and it doesn't actually mean anything. It's kind of yeah, like, like super soldier, right? A little bit, yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah. even that has more meaning. It's just like a soldier and like the super version of it. Whereas this is like Asian person who fights plus something vaguely related to the atom. Like, sure, why not? <laughs> I, I do suppose uh, with that title, Atomic Samurai, I do suppose it gives a blend of like the modern age and the ancient age mixed together, right? Like the atomic era. And uh, that that's kind of an interesting uh, interpretation. Uh, Jason, go ahead. Oh, yeah, no, well, like, you know, thinking a name of like, of, uh, you know, atomic samurai, uh, given that during its time, like, it reminds me of like, how gimmicky, like, pro wrestlers names were like, back in the day, like the 70s and 80s, like the Iron Chief, uh, for example, and um, yeah, like, it, it, like, they, they, they would just take, I guess, token characters and, and just really um just make that gimmicky by by name and and that that's how i kind of read it it's it's definitely something of its time and should never come back again you may be saving this for the trial portion itself but i know you have thoughts on the dragon lord story well speaking <laughs> <laughs> um, of orientalism yeah i mean i i think like Actually, as, as I was looking through the documents, I was like, am I on the evil uncle beat? Like, am I, is this what's happening to me? We just keep talking about evil uncles. <laughs> but like, but, but this is, this is clearly not your fault because this happens so much in Marvel with the Asian characters. Um, but yeah, no, I, I don't find his, um, like, iconographically and um, both kind of textually 
the character is so is such a, an incredible mixed bag to me that I kind of love to see it in the way that I love mess, you know, like it's very <laughs> um, like it, it's it's one of those things where like in order to enjoy the experience, I have taken it upon myself to employ like comic book grace where it's all vibes mostly. And because like, honestly, a lot of the decisions that went into this were not that deep. So we don't have to retroactively go back and try to sort of like um, map different contemporary um, kind of political thought onto this necessarily, but it is kind of fun to sort of like see where people were. And I don't think I have any thoughts on like that specifically um, in this context more deeply than that, where I'm just like, okay, I see that this character is being made from a place where like Asian-ness and Japanese-ness, especially in this case, is just all vibes, um, according to its white writers and creators at the time. And so it's not something that I'm like, that I can't I can't really fault the character for it, but it's one of those things that sort of clues me in as to where we are in time and in place. Steve, any thoughts here? Um, a lot of my thoughts can uh, I wasn't sure whether to bring them up right now or bring them up during the trial part, but other people have touched upon it uh, previously. Um, we see a lot of different uh, identities or roles that Sunfire played. Uh, uh, touched upon in this section, like the crime lord, the atomic samurai, Japanese national hero. So just kind of building upon where we started with a previous conversation about him being a younger, under 17-year-old, being highly influenced by his father figures. So that kind of like is where he got a lot of his identity. This feels like if we're thinking about just the character and not the overall comic context that he occupies, this feels and I, I'll bring this up a lot in trial point too, but this feels like where he's trying to find an identity or a role or his like lane that he's going to fill. So uh, there's going to be, I have more thoughts on that on uh, like throughout the trial, but I'll be referring to specific quotes from the uh, comics. <laughs> I am a, I am weirdly fond of all of the members of uh, Shiro's family. Uh, I, you know, except for the dad, but I really love Mariko. I love the silver samurai. He's a character. I'm oddly, I just, just think it's so fucking cool uh, uh i really enjoy uh yukio of course uh do you guys have any thoughts on his family connections before we move forward i have to say that i really want them to fix the name um so i guess quick context in mariko yashida is spelled yashida with an a which is not a real japanese name which yoshida is but like because of you know the way that X-Men comics have gone, Yashida has sometimes ended up being the more commonly known version of the last name because like Mariko is associated with Wolverine, who is like one of the most famous comic book characters of all time. So like it kind of goes back and forth a lot of the time. I really think they should just fix it. That's just one thing that I have to say in terms of his family. Entirely fair. Any other thoughts here? Um, My one thought was that I just... I didn't like that he was related to all the other significant Japanese characters. Um, I'm okay, like with outstanding people in any country, you know, knowing each other, but like we're all related. Like, I wish that hadn't been the, you know, I mean, I'm sure it brought some narrative joy to some writer at some point to be like, oh, wow, yeah, and then they're cousins and all that stuff. Um, but it just feels too convenient um 
And it also is kind of a step away from diversity, especially if you're trying to diversify the idea of like um, Japan and like having all these different types of characters in it and all that stuff. Having them all be related is kind of like lame. Um, yeah, that was my one note um, on, on that part. So in this uh, Sunfire series that I want to see, he's roommates with the Silver Samurai. They're like an odd couple. Uh, they don't get along very well. We get lots of flashbacks into their childhood where where Ken is beating Shiro up. You know, there's there's a, there's a lot of uh, beautiful moments for these two. Also, preemptive announcement in January, we're going to be having the trial of Madam Hydra on this channel or on this show. So we get to talk a lot about the Silver Samurai in that uh, episode, obviously. <laughs> It'll be a lot of fun. Uh, okay, I'm gonna be honest. Going. I'm gonna be honest. I did not know that Silver Samurai and Madame Hydra had ever met. Um, oh my god! So I was really wondering where you were going with that. <laughs> they they have met. They have fucked. They have exchanged love notes. Uh, it's uh, there's a whole thing. <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> okay, um, I do really want to real quick um, quibbles with the name aside. I do love Mariko. I think she's a cool character. I think that her relationship with Shiro is really interesting. I wish that we had more of a chance to explore that. I love her, like, sort of badass businesswoman era. And, um, yeah, she's cool. Okay, so Sunfire has a fascinating relationship with the X-Men. Uh, let's take a few instances right from the beginning. Giant Size X-Men number one. Xavier recruits a team of new mutants to save his original team from Krakoa. He visits Sunfire and his garden in Osaka, Japan, where they are served tea. Xavier says, I know your feelings toward the Western world, Shiro, and I would not have come to you, Shiro says, but you require help that only I may give. So I owe you nothing, Professor, but perhaps I owe something to myself. Perhaps it's time once more for the world to hear from Sunfire. And it implies that the two of these guys know each other. I mean, they met maybe one. Th anyway, as soon as the they have never met. <laughs> as soon as the team is gathered, Sunfire yells, right now, you will tell us why you dragged us here, Professor. I, for one, am swiftly losing my patience. A little while later, as Cyclops tries to lead the team, Sunfire refuses to listen. Cyclops says, I don't understand, Sunfire. We offer you a chance to help your fellow mutants. And, and Sunfire says, I do not even like my fellow mutants, Cyclops. I certainly will not risk my life to help them. But he helped them anyway, although he did call Nightcrawler a misfit a bunch of times. Uh, in X-Men 94, Xavier's planning the future of the X-Men. He says, now as to the future, and Sunfire says, as to the future, Professor, it is a future that does not include Sunfire. Xavier says, Shiro, I don't understand. I thought you'd agreed to join us. And Sunfire says, I agreed to help you, Professor, once. And once was quite enough. My duty is to my country and my emperor. I care nothing for this world you offer. I want none of it. None of you and none of your X-Men. Sunfire bids you farewell, prof Professor. You and your pack of idealistic fools. But hear me, Xavier. Should you need this samurai's help again, do not seek me out and do not ask, for Sunfire will refuse. This guy must be really fun to write. <laughs> he's so he's so mad uh sunfire soon works again with the x-men when moses magnum threatens to destroy japan go see my episode on moses magnum with andre mason and this time he thanked them sayonara my friend he says to cyclops and thank you for all the help you gave me and japan i was proud to fight by your side and would be honored to do so again farewell 
Sunfire's pulled in and out of mutant affairs. He's a member of the team. He's a horseman of apocalypse. He's a marauder. He's part of the 12, which is everyone's favorite storyline. He's in Alpha Flight. He's in Black Sun and Big Hero 6 and the Uncanny Avengers. He's the arrogant hero, the arrogant misfit. He's a depressed alcoholic. Then he's a reluctant hero. And then he's an angry supervillain. But it wasn't until Sunfire moved to Krakoa that we saw a major shift in his character. Look at how Jerry Duggan changed our complete understanding of this character in X-Men Volume 6, Number 2. Sunfire has just used his powers to wipe out an entire annihilation wave, which is just so fucking impressive. And a civilian says, you saved the town, what's your name? And he says, Sunfire. You would not always, excuse me, you would not have always cheered me, I'm afraid. It was not always my goal to use my powers for all mankind. By the time I realized I was born gifted, I had already lost much. I did what many do. I fought for my country. Then I fought for the X-Men. Later, I fought for the Avengers. I always wondered what it would get me, and I always ended up with an empty heart. Then suddenly Krakoa arrived, and as good as it has been for us, I had already found fighting for a country to be unfulfilling. So I asked to be chosen for the X-Men. I have always served a powerful interest and with the goal of self-enrichment. But tonight, watching our world and Arakos transform, I stand before you wishing only to be of service. These were the words I, excuse me, those were the words I spoke on behalf of myself at the Hellfire Gala. I remain happy to serve. We've also later, late, uh, more recently seen him on Arako, kind of on an artist's journey, kind of finding himself. He just had his own hero's story in the most recent X-Men Unlimited run. Uh, he's a full-on fucking hero now. Tell me some of your thoughts on this portrayal and its change. Or even his relationship with the X-Men in general. Giant size X-Men was first story I, I read with Sunfire. Like well, when I saw his action figure, I was like, oh, a, a, a Japanese character. So uh, let, let me read up on him. And and then you know, like the the dialogue you you just read, Chad, was like, like he just goes out of his way to be such an asshole. Like you don't have to be that mean, but you really like just go out of your way. Uh and and, and the fact that like you know he's so like like i don't want to be part of the team and then he 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 and then he like one page later he he joins the x men he's like i'm doing things on my own terms and going to help you guys out it's like i thought you got i thought you just like quit the team it's like it's like fuck you i can do whatever i want i'm sunfire <laughs> and um yeah like he he he's like the He's such a wild card, which is so wild. But you know, I, I, I'm I'm glad how like he's. I mean, he he's he's definitely shifted during the the Magnus Magnum arc where he he's become a bit more cooperative, and and then at the very end, like he becomes an ally for the X Men. Like he, his his uh, his character has become a bit more gentler than than his appearance in, in giant size X-Men. Other thoughts here? 
Uh, just on the dialogue real quick specifically, I don't think this was intentional, but in hindsight, it is really fun to read his dialogue as just like the bitchiest gay person that you know kind of going off. And maybe that's why I'm a little bit more sympathetic to the way that he talks there, because it's just fun to read, even if it's like I said earlier, like it's not something that you would hang out with necessarily. Also, in his defense, I also lose patience with Professor X a lot of the time, too. So I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> uh, Steve? Uh, so I have some thoughts about his overall journey, and we touched upon it in the previous two parts of this discussion. So um, him talking uh, talking about the Krakoa era and being a part of the X-Men, uh, I want to re reference um, Submariner 52, which is part of Trial Point 1. I really love this quote from Namor, which I think really enlightened me to Sunfire's overall journey. Um, the quote is on page 16 of Submariner 52. Uh, Neymar is talking and he's talking to Sunfire. He's like, what do I care for such petty nationalism? Such nonsense entered in my youth. Now I fight for myself and no one else. So uh, I really wanted to uh, bring up that quote because it touches upon the first two parts of, I think, Sunfire's journey. And then the third part, which we covered with the Krakoa era stuff, um, like the stage one of Sunfire's like identity, it seems like is him being used or him being him feeding into systems of power such as like uh imperial nationalistic japanese ideology so imperialism and nationalism and then also like family power dynamics i, I think a lot about uh, uh systems of power and structures of power because for just for justice work so it's like the first stage is really him being in the systems of power the imperialism nationalism family structure and then i also included apocalypse because he's all about power too so like referencing him as a horseman so that stage one is just him being a, like being almost a pawn in something else and then uh, Namer's, Namer in his quote says, now I fight for myself and no one else. And I kind of see that as stage two of Sunfire's journey where he's trying to find his own identity. And that's like the next step that he's going to go towards. And then you can make a case for it, uh, for him being selfish about it, which is definitely a thing that people can do once they start looking out for themselves. But also it's like once you start developing your own personal identity and, you, and you're at a really strong identity that you can be proud of, you know which systems kind of deserve your attention, deserve your input, and you can develop a healthy relationship with that system. Like once you have a really strong sense of self, you can have a healthy relationship with like a family dynamic, you know what I mean? But with a healthy sense of self, you're, it won't be a healthy relationship with apocalypse. <laughs> you know what it's, I mean? Uh, it's it's fascinating to notice, and Trung, your karma story is a great example of this. You can fix something problematic with one line of dialogue. And there's a lot of writers like Jerry Duggan, Al Ewing, Leah Williams, Zeb Wells, who do this so brilliantly. Look at how Scalp Hunter has become Grey Crow, or Polaris was given her doctorate, or what Al did with Peepers. Like a, a, a couple lines of dialogue. Apocalypse too, even. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Uh, but with a couple lines of dialogue, you can change the entire perspective. Uh, let's discuss the last section, oh. and then we'll jump into the trial. Can, oh, can please, I just go ahead. Add, add one last thing. And yeah, I do agree with the single lines of dialogue, because we find those tucked into the most random comics for Sunfire, too. Like, we'll find them in Rogue or Deathlock. So it'll just be like random insights into Sunfire, but it won't be in a mainstream X-Men comic. But going off of the three stages of Sunfire's identity, the first part being feeding into systems of power, the second part being doing it for self, and it could be a healthy version of doing it for self. 
uh, stage three, especially with the Krakoa era, this is one personal belief that I have where even if people are super into self-service and just like looking out for their own self, it's in people's best self-interest to foster a community that cares for each other and trusts each other. So I think uh, as Sunfire like goes from um, being uh, like finding his identity to finding his role into the in this overall mutant and hero community, I, I really like his journey from where he started to where he's ended. He's given his he's given himself and lost bits of his personage to all these other systems. And now he's found himself and found what he can healthily breathe life into in with the Krakoa team. So I really love his journey from like where he started to where he's ended up, which we alluded to with the end of that uh, previous yeah, discussion. Great insights, Justin, and then Trung. Yeah, um, so two things. One, I do want to say I love that you brought up the Submariner moments because I think his comparisons to Namor are so fascinating. Like he mentions himself in that quote, he also is kind of associated with nationalism in a way because he's always like fighting on behalf of Atlantis. And it is funny that he's the one being like, oh, like I don't care about nationalism anymore because he, similar to Sunfire, keeps going back, right? Like the way that comic book characters often do, kind of just get reset to their base state. He's like you know, not caring about Atlantis right now, but like five minutes later, who knows, right? Um, the other thing is about the speech itself. I do really like this speech. I think it contextualizes a lot of his very sporadic and inconsistent character history in a way that like makes as much sense as it's going to, you know, like it's never going to be completely seamless, but it does a really good job. Um, and I do... Um, sort of also like what Steve was saying, I do think it recognizes that like, although Sunfire has been, you know, sort of fighting for other people, like getting tricked, getting hypnotized, whatever, he does like, I feel like this is his way of admitting that it has been selfish. Like he talks about, I've served a powerful interest with the goal of self-enrichment. And this is him trying to move away from that. I stand before you wishing only to be of service to other people. So I think it is like a pretty good turning point of him. And last thing, I promise, I do think it's really good to talk about Araco specifically, because like, they're mutants like him, but they are people very different from him, which is different than the other causes that he's picked. Like he's joined the X-Men, he's fought on behalf of Japan, like groups that he is sort of a part of, but like wanting to be of service to Araco, a group that is pretty fundamentally different from him, is I think a new route for him. So I'm excited to see that getting explored more as well. Oh, yeah, I was going to say that I, I feel like all of the um, the character journeys that he's been on so far have sort of reflected the ways in which he's been more humanized by writers in more recent years. Like he start, sort of started off as more of an archetype and now he's got more developed relationships and he has a little bit more of like an interior life, which is um, kind of a great way to sort of just like explore what his allegiances actually are which i think is so interesting that he sort of like started as this sort of like figurehead and now he's an actual realized character through the hands of a lot of other writers and so that's always kind of fun like it's it's nice to sort of see like both his character arc within the text that way and then also externally that people are taking an interest in him as a character um in a way that just was not present at the moment of his inception. Um, I think his journey is also like very much, like for me, and I've read this character very, very broadly, but he always just seemed to be in search of a daddy for a really long time. So I'm like, finally, <laughs> like he's sort of like, sort of evolved away from that need a little bit. And I'm like, okay, good for you, girl. <laughs> Which now is he's gonna be his own daddy. Yes, exactly. He's reached a place where he can be his own daddy. We're, we're very proud of you, Sunfire. <laughs> 
he can date a 20 year old and be the daddy <laughs> um uh yeah andrew go ahead oh i wanted to add and piggyback on what people have been saying um pretty much that uh i think the the modern sunfire is the strongest he's been um ever so far and i think the part of that um to the credit of the many writers who've been doing this you know steve fox jerry duggan um is the idea that you know they've just been synthesizing everything that's happened before and as much as we can't justify every little specific um going on all the broad generals and just looking at the narrative of that as like someone who's searching for a purpose someone who's trying to find himself and getting lost in other people's way and eventually like making the statement that you know this is the way i choose i want to see how far i can go i think he said that like three or four times in the last year um and it's very empowering it's nice to see that sort of like growth in his character and it, it makes me relate to him more than i've ever related to him um in the past because yeah he's been a bit of a douche but you know that's part of his charm right so <laughs> this is such a smart discussion uh thank you all for your insights uh in contest of champions number one a caption box calls sunfire the flamboyant atomic samurai He's never had a single romantic interest in all of his appearances. He's also been a misogynist in many of his early appearances, thinking about how he will not be bested by a mere woman, for example. Uh, there's a lot of readers this character as gay, which is really fun. If you read if you read from that lens, it provides a certain level of insight and understanding into this character, but that has never been confirmed on page. Uh, not only does he not have any romantic interests, he doesn't have a lot of relationships that have been given any page space. We've seen some interactions with Rogue, with Wolverine, with the Silver Samurai, with Big Hero 6, I guess with Gambit a bit, but he doesn't have a lot of close friendships. Though his status as Japan's de facto flag suit character means he's had multiple interactions with a wide variety of characters in other parts of the Marvel Universe, like Captain America, Namor, Iron Man, Alpha Flight. Uh, let's talk about his powers quickly. Sunfire can, simply put, channel the powers of the sun. He absorbs seemingly limitless amounts of solar energy and solar radiation and converts it into fiery plasma that he can wield in a number of ways. He manipulates air currents to fly faster than the angel, leaving a heat trail behind him. He can fire powerful fiery blasts from his body that can reach the heat of the sun itself as well as create plasma shields around him. We generally see him flying through the air and blasting fire out of his hands to burn or melt buildings, but sometimes those powers are stretched to their upper limits, and he's like a miniature sun itself. Sunfire is also a martial artist who can hold his own with a sword. Briefly, he was the Horseman Famine, meaning he was mutated by Apocalypse using a Celestial Death Seed. We'll get there. Uh, he could produce oxygen around him then, uh, which would then burn, allowing him to fire, uh, be on fire even in space. Once his body was destroyed, but because he had access to the energies of a Celestial, he was reborn as a being of pure energy. Uh, lastly, let's talk fashion. Outside of his classic, classic Blazing Sun costume, Sunfire has had a few key looks. He's had his tech-era costume with the long ponytail and the bright red suit with the cybernetic enhancements. He had the short hair over the skin-tight yellow and red look. And then the Age of Apocalypse happened, and we got the black and orange on fire look with that amazing white face mask, the Japanese red flag reflected in the mask. The 616 Sunfire quickly emulated this costume, and then he had his more streamlined look on the modern X-Men team, plus a couple of fantastic Hellfire Gala looks 
Oh, there was also the zero fluid look. <laughs> we don't have to talk about that. Uh, let me hear your thoughts on Sunfire's relationships, uh, fashion, and powers, if you have any. It's always, have interesting. Two it's always interesting to look at the fire guy on the team, right? We see that with like the human torch. Uh, it's not used. And I think a lot of writers don't know how to use Sunfire. You got to look at these other characters, like Firestar. Uh, Andrew, go ahead. In terms of fashion, like uh, my least favorite costume is his original costume. Um, my favorite costumes are the Madurera Age of Apocalypse version. You know, just an amazing, interesting design. Um, and his most recent redesign from Pepe Larraz, um, which has a little bit of like the rising sun sort of like thing, but it's not like as in your face. Um, and it, um, I mean, if you if 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 you just Google online like a couple of images that Laraz did with it, uh, it 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 looks really good with how his power expresses, where these white stripes sort of burst out into like, you know, um, uh, high exposure flames, um, and it looks really good. It gives him a unique aesthetic, and it's tricky because like in the Marvel U, you have Human Torch, you have Firestar, you have you have a bunch of fire people in a bunch of ways, so um to, to to do fire uh but mostly people default to like the human torch style so um you know it's nice when they're able to depict it in a different way and sort of allow that you know it, despite being on theme to have a different aesthetic and set the character apart from his you know um power contemporaries jason do you have a favorite sunfire costume um yeah no it's it's definitely the pepe Ross costume for sure um I just like how fluid it looks, like just the flames and all. Even even though it it takes just the essence of the classic look, and like you can kind of remove it from the from the rising sun um, motif of it, and and just and and you know the adding the black is is just a nice punch to his costume. I love it. I was thinking, uh, uh, I just used uh, Human Torch and Firestar as the contemporary examples and how different their powers are. Uh, the Human Torch is flame and uh, Angelica is microwave and Sunfire is plasma, right? Like super hot star shit. Like he can pick both their asses. Uh, Justin, go ahead. Um, yeah, I mean, I also have to give props to the Pepe Lara design. Like it's been, and it's it came at like just the right time too. Just to sort of like the characters really recognize rec that reckoning with like his past um, publication history as well. This is a very random pull, but I'm gonna pop an image into the chat as well. It's like an honorable mention for in the age of X Men Next Gen series. He's in this like maroon burgundy suit, like just a regular, like he's like a teacher in this alternate reality. So he's wearing that, but he still has like his classic mask on, like the sort of koi fish kind of look almost. Is that um, what it's it just, is? I was waiting for someone to explain that. I to wasn't me. sure. I've heard like a lot of different theories, but like I feel like that's the one that I kind of like the most. Um, it's a, it's just a bizarre mask, but um, just the juxtaposition of those two is very, very funny to me. And it's been very recently in um, Hickman's Ultimate Universe reboot, where we have Sunfire literally representing all of Japan. And he's used doing that same thing. He has a suit on and he has this koi fish mask as a look. So, you know, it's it still lives <laughs> in the modern comics. <laughs> Is this camp? 
Maybe. <laughs> I really want to. That was a joke. I, I, I like hate every costume with that mask in it. <laughs> no, it is. There is something weirdly sinister about it. I don't know what it is, but like that's what makes it funny with the suit, I think. But like any, like the, obviously, I mean, we've talked about the problems with the original costume. Um, it is memorable, but the mask itself is what kind of like bothers me from an aesthetic point. There's mm -hmm. something about, I don't think this was intentional, but I feel like the shape of it kind of like creates this almost stereotypical like slanted eye silhouette that I'm not a huge fan of, especially considering what we're talking about. Um, and uh, that's all I have to say on any, that. Any thoughts on his long hair, like uh, cyber enhanced era? I tried reading some of those comics. I didn't. It was Wolverine and like Wolverine fifty six. I didn't even know it was him for the first like three pages. <laughs> yes, I was like, wait. <laughs> I think like historically, it's kind of cool that from what I can tell, um, I don't know who like designed the costume itself, but the artists in that arc in that arc were Will Sportacio and Jim Lee. So I think this might have been like the first time that like actual Asian people have been writing and drawing this character. Sure. Um, the costume itself, you know, they tried, I'm sure. Okay, we're going to begin with the trial of Shiro Yashida. Now, as we're doing this, we're going to continue to have some discussion about this character and his portrayal. Uh, as always with the trials, I've kind of highlighted five sections of his history. Each of the jury members has been invited to present uh, the uh, prosecution and the defense. We will then all individually vote in each section using a scale from one to five. Uh, you get to use the subjectivity of that scale however you like, but one is the least amount of crime and five is the most most amount of evil. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Uh, if we are voting in that way. Uh, so we're going to begin with trial point one. We call this section the arrogant new mutant. The assigned jury member here is Trung. And Trung, it's such an honor to have you here. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. When we first meet Sunfire, he's been influenced by his uncle Tomo Yoshida into believing in the principles of Imperial Japan. When his father, Saburo Yoshida, went to the United Nations to dedicate a statue to the world's youth, Sunfire destroyed it, then fought the X-Men while spouting off consistently about how he was superior to everyone around him. As he sought to burn down the Capitol building, Shiro's father was killed by Tomo, and Shiro then killed Tomo in a fatal blast. Deported back to Japan, Sunfire soon fell under the sway of another mutant who believed in Imperial Japan, that of Katsuo Sasaki, the Dragon Lord. When a peasant who worked for the Dragon Lord escaped and crossed paths with Namor and Namorita, and Sunfire attacked them to recapture the peasant, realizing Namor had a history of fighting the Japanese army, Sunfire fought the hero savagely as Namor tried to stop him from poisoning the world's plankton, which would cripple the Earth's food cycle. Sunfire shot at a ship, putting many civilians in danger while releasing the defoliating agents into the water. Sunfire had a change of heart and helped protect the oceans with Submariner, and then took the fight back to Dragon Lord, who he realized was planning to conquer the world with a set of nuclear weapons. The battle ended uh, when weapons went off, the explosion contained on the island base. Though Sunfire was lost at sea, Namorita helped to save him. 
Okay, this next one requires a little bit of setup. I'll do this quickly. Japan and Korea have a long history dating back centuries, including earlier Japanese invasions of Korea during the 1500s. Japan invaded Korea more recently in the early 20th century, up to and including during World War II. Then the Vietnam, Vietnam War happened, and it lasted from 1955 to 1975. This is a vast oversimplification, but a bunch of world powers got involved uh, during the Cold War, and it was a very complicated, and a lot of people died, like hundreds of thousands of people, many of them civilians. At the end of the war, North and South Vietnam integrated into one country, and Japan paid the government restitutions for their actions during World War II. Which brings us to Iron Man 68272, which was published in 1974, right as the war was ending. And the Asian characters are drawn as racist caricatures. Sunfire is in his Rising Sun costume trying to reclaim honor in Japan by helping to advance the reconstruction work in Vietnam. So see, it's complicated. All right, back to the trial. <laughs> Shiro is still very young here, and a Vietnamese man agrees to prioritize Sunfire if he will destroy the American hero, Iron Man, who is in the area first. Uh, Sunfire attacks Iron Man, who's there protecting an American woman named Roxanne Gilbert, but also in the area is a Russian agent, the Unicorn. Uh, see my episode on the Unicorn with, <laughs> with the Patreon channel. Uh, except he has a mind, the unicorn has the mind of the Mandarin in him, and this is the very problematic Iron Man villain from China. So he's in the unicorn's body. It's a long story. Uh, okay, we gotta move on. So the Mandarin teleports Sunfire to his submarine, tricks him into firing up a machine, and then secures a transfer back into his own mind. Phew, ready for more because it gets more problematic. The Mandarin fights with Iron Man while Sunfire remains trapped in a sinking submarine, but Iron Man rescued him, prompting Sunfire to team up with Iron Man. Mandarin summons the giant alien robot Ultimo and uses it to attack the base of the Yellow Claw. And this is maybe the most racist character of all time, or very near. Marvel created this guy in 1957. He and the Mandarin at war a lot. Anyway, Sunfire and Iron Man work together to bury Ultimo under a mountain, and they end as friends, with Sunfire agreeing that maybe even an American billionaire's bodyguard might be an ally. Uh, Sunfire then had an adventure with the X-Men against Krakoa. Hearing that Stark International was engaging in weapons deals with Japan, specifically the scientist Goro Watanabe and his daughter, Sunfire attacked Stark's company, melting it into slag before Stark, wearing the guardsman armor, fought back. Then Michael O'Brien, wearing the Iron Man armor, attacked. He was teleported away by the Mandarin. Stark put his real Iron Man armor back on, then fought Sunfire, who lashed out at Jasper Sitwell, burning the gun out of his hand. Iron Man then knocked Sunfire out. The key issues in this section are X-Men 64, Submariner 52 through 54, Iron Man 68 through 70, and 98 and 99. Let me turn it over to Trunk. Oh, I gotta be real. These issues were rough <laughs> to get through because they're so racist. <laughs> but, um, okay, so I'm going to try to be really fair to the character and kind of keep it within the realm of this particular jury discussion. And so my jury point is uh, Sunfire, the arrogant new mutant. Um which uh so uh let's see i'll 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 go i'll do the 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 um our our uh, our con first so so sunfire is not a terribly likable character um in most periods but especially in this one like a lot of the time he's like a colorful flamboyant asshole and in these issues he's solely just kind of a little bit of an aimless character he doesn't really um 
he doesn't really hold fast to any ideals of his own and he'll very like he's very likely to switch sides kind of like depending on his relationship to the person there um versus like his personal allegiance to whatever it is that he's promised to before um and so it's very clear that he's sort of like kind of searching a little bit on the inside and so it's kind of a nice character beat but at the same time it's also within the context of a lot of really horribly drawn stuff which is kind of a shame because i actually quite like george tusca's artwork um in the issues that we read um he's a great draftsman and uh, every single issue character has buck teeth and slanted eyes so it's it's fantastic to kind of like read through these as like an Asian person um so uh so the um I read uh these issues right after the introduction issue so my relationship with this character is like as someone who is just looking for like a male authority figure to sort of like dom him a little bit and so he's you know he <laughs> So, like, after his both of his actual father figures die, he gets involved with um, the Dragon Lord. And then after that, like, there's this um, kind of sort of, like, circuitous relationship to the Mandarin that he may or may not be aware of. And then later on, there's Apocalypse. And so he's just, like, always kind of on this arc. But, like, as a, as a character to sort of, like, um, to, uh, uh, to kind of center the discussion around his, like, so-called arrogance is... Um, like, yes, he's an incredibly arrogant character. The ways in which the character oftentimes um, is uh, sort of put up against the uh, situation in which he finds itself, the his story arcs often rely on his arrogance sort of like as a point of tension so that the reader can understand where it is that he's struggling to go next against the characters who are very certain about what the right thing is, which I think is interesting. Um, so like, yeah, so he's an arrogant character. My kind of like in his defense um i think that the flag suit characters are really kind of in a lose-lose situation when it comes to their portrayals of their arrogance because on the one hand like it it's i find personally really interesting to dissect the ways in which american writers will portray another country's patriotism and so to sort of like read him through that lens it becomes very clear that in even in their sort of more empathetic moments the flag suit character of another nation is going to be incredibly jingoistic and represent sort of the worst most um kind of like far right wing impulses of whatever that nation is which is so interesting because captain america um, in more kind of like recent iterations, like sort of has to directly address and critique what's going on in the United States. And I am of a couple of minds about whether or not other flag suit characters as written by, you know, Marvel writers are really able to do that because it becomes paternalistic because then you end up having white writers being like, this is the flag suit character of Japan. And these sort of like intra communal conversations about nationalism in a place that is not a part of our cultural milieu is very, uh, it's, it's, it's tough to grapple with. And so he, he has a tough job to do, um, both narratively and as a character. Um, and so, in terms of whether or not the character is like arrogant in a problematic way, I find to be um, really difficult to parse down because he sort of has to contend with a lot of these dynamics that most American characters just do not. And I find his arrogance honestly fun. That's my favorite part, almost. <laughs> yeah. 
he uh on this journey here he's he's got an interesting set of circumstances because he's committing crimes clearly but he's mm-hmm. seeing himself as an agent of someone or a cause and he often has a reversal in character where he does the heroic thing afterward yeah but, so it's not that he's not intelligent but looking for a father figure grieving finding the cause to believe in i think is a huge it's a problem. little bit that he's not intelligent and that's okay <laughs> no yeah no, he's not smart <laughs> like he's not a character that i look to like in terms of all of the other marvel characters like every time like he he doesn't do a lot of his own thinking and he's very quick to surrender his authority to someone else which is super fun of him. <laughs> a very <laughs> fair read uh so what questions and comments do we have from the jury uh, on this section uh particularly those things that might help you when you are making your judgment in a moment does anyone have any comments here i will say that from like a, a justice perspective one of the things that you ask yourself when someone does something wrong and you need to make it and someone needs to make it right is what does justice look like in terms of the people affected? And um, they they the people who are affected should have a really big voice in what restitution looks like. And then there's there's another thing, uh, not really about justice, but just in general is like, did you learn from this? Are you trying to make progress from this, et cetera, et cetera? Are you trying to be better? <laughs> so going off of those two points. Um, a lot of the stuff he did in this trial point, he wasn't even successful at for the most part. <laughs> so, there's, so there's really not much that he needs to make restitution for. <laughs> but also uh, to the second point, like, um, did, did he make progress or in the, if this happened again, would he try to be better? And we see in a lot of these, um, a lot of these stories, and uh, the one that I'll reference more so is the Submariner with the plankton ship. Um, is that in a lot of these stories, he actually tries to fix what he did wrong. He actually teams up with a hero and like um tries to etc. Cetera, et cetera, fix what he did. So that I, I think those give him a lot of grace through my readings throughout uh, this trial. Yeah. Justin? Um, yeah, if I can sort of add to the idea of like, is he learning from each of these incidents? Again, we've talked, we've like touched on this a little bit in the past, but like comic book characters for better or for worse are often sort of reset to their starting point, which means Sunfire has had multiple stories where he has to like sort of learn Japanese nationalism is bad, that kind of thing, right? But like, even within the arc of these stories, like there is some semblance of progress if you compare his like original story where he's like, dead set on like fighting the united states versus the submariner story where he's like you know still uh working for someone else but like even in the beginning of the iron man story the idea is that he's there originally to advance reconstruction work and then it just sort of ends up manipulated by this vietnamese general to fight the iron man which is like you know still not great optics wise in general but um is not necessarily like a morally um bad uh, like not very uh, well thought out move on Sunfire's part, let's say, um, but isn't like isn't ill intentioned, let's say. Um, the problem is like af- the, even though these stories do have kind of a bit of an art there, even across these different series, like one starts in the X Men, then you get Submariner, and then Iron Man. There is like that sort of character development, but then because it's comic books, it does kind of end up reset again, which is unfortunate. Um, the other thing that I really want to note about the Submariner story, the thing that's really wild about it is like the ship is carrying defoliating agents, I think, to the U.S. Army in Vietnam, which is like not great historically. 
Um, so I'm actually more inclined to put him on trial for like allowing the ship to continue on, if I'm going to be completely honest, because that's probably not going to end well for anyone there. And fair listeners, every Sunfire story we've referenced thus far in the trial will be covered on my show in 2024. So <laughs> we'll talk about it later. Uh, so let's go ahead and vote in this first section. I will go first on this one. It is a one for me. I think he's relatively blameless, uh, given the trauma and uh, like him being an agent of particular people. Also, the crimes weren't super effective. <laughs> uh, Steve, what's your vote? One to five. So um, most of it is going to be like a two that goes down to a one because he does try to fix what he did. The biggest one that I have an issue with is probably the uh, the defoliating agents one where um because there was a there would have been a really big effect from that so that was that would have been like a three or four if he'd have went through with it but that I, feel like, I feel like someone just said use this and he didn't know what questions to ask <laughs> yeah, exactly just, just being important question off. does sunfire know what defoliating agents are <laughs> me shoot he doesn't like when he takes down the ship it's not even just like it's not even like i gotta do this namor was like yo he just shot that ship out of spite because i was taking him out (laughs) Uh, justin i feel like i am inclined to give him a two for this one uh jason and then andrew uh yeah i would say no two he's just a uh, like he's that same misdirected teen as we saw him in the, his first appearance. Um, and he didn't kill anybody. So, yeah, it's definitely not a four or five. Uh, yeah, it's a two for me. We got to keep moving. But, Ed, Andrew, what's your vote? I, I would go for two. Um, and my my quick uh, reasoning for that is he's foolish. He's young. Um, he's reckless. It doesn't feel malicious, though. It feels a little like he's doing it to impress people or to be selfless or for like a bigger um, cause that he's, you know, dazzled by. Um, but uh, yeah, that's why I think it's a two. And uh, Trump. Um, I came down on a three. I was a little bit harder on him than anybody else because he's still working with the U S to deliver chemical weapons <laughs> 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 to Vietnam, which in this issue, I think they're in Vietnam, right? Like, they're in Vietnam. It yeah, is very so, possibly literally right, Asian yeah, or so like, like what the fuck. Yeah, it's 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 a new fr- you have for anyone who's like not familiar oh. with this issue, please go look at it because I don't think that I could describe how racist it is to you. Because it's sort of racist within the context of Asian people too, because this jungle Asian thing is like like the like I didn't recognize them at first, and then I was like, where are they? <laughs> and then as we were talking, I was like, oh, they're from where I'm from, so that's fun. Um, yeah, no, I, I I still came down a little bit harder on him just because um I mean, like lack of competence notwithstanding. Um at the end of the issue, we recognize that like the person that he's serving has nuclear weapons as opposed to these like chemical ones. And so it feels tamer in the context of that. But like I'm I'm still like, oh, like you're still you're still you're still moving some chemical agents around. Like you, you, you were not, like this isn't <laughs> this isn't good, man. 
Uh, thank you. That gives us an 11 out of 30 in that first section. We'll go on to trial point two. This one's called Atomic Samurai. The assigned jury member here is Justin Park. This one requires a little setup too, but this is the last long section, I promise. Uh, Shiro began working with Yoritomo, a famous Japanese nationalist that, sh uh, that Shiro idolized. And they begin making powerful business deals together with shady companies like Cybertech and Roxxon, while making plans to create an army of super agents to bring Japan back to greatness. Shiro, however, wanted to create a defensive force, while Yoritomo wanted to take control of the country to seize power. An assassin nearly killed Shiro, who survived with his mutant powers. Yoritomo tried framing Harlan Riker for the attempt, and S.H.I.E.L.D. and Deathlock got involved hmm. as Sunfire uh, joined them to stop Yoritomo's attempt to bomb Washington, D.C. Months later, Dr. Demonicus gathered a group. This is a Mar Marvel villain. <laughs> He's nuts. Uh, Dr. Demonicus gathered a group of his experiments and creations and called them the Pacific Overlords with names like the Big One, Cybertooth, Irizumi, Kane, Jawbreaker, Typhoon, Pele, and Kuroko. Uh, and he hypnotized Sunfire into joining the team. Sunfire and Pele attacked Pearl Harbor after bursting out of a volcano, while Namor was, Namor was there receiving an award and battled the Avengers and the Submariner. When Sunfire was defeated, he had no memory of the battle. He also later helped defeat the villains. Sunfire continued operating as the national hero for Japan for a time, but Magneto caused his powers to flare out of control, and he was placed in containment with his powers blocked until Silver Samurai and Wolverine broke him out of the containment facility. Despite knowing his powers were out of control and civilians might be at risk, Sunfire joined the others in destroying the Red Ronin robot, which the Japanese government had been retooling to hunt down mutants. Side note, Sunfire then went through it for a bit, not part of the trial, but he got radiation poisoning from his own powers. He ended up being contained in Project Helio in Canada with a few misadventures along Alpha, alongside Alpha Flight, including being mind-controlled by Mesmero for a bit. But actually, it turned out he was ex like exposed to zero fluid, like the stuff that gives Jack of Hearts his half-black skin. Go see Rainbow Rouse uh, She-Hulk for more on that guy. Uh, and then he ended up with Big Hero 6 for a while. And then there was the 12 and the Yakuba. Okay, we're covering all of that just in that paragraph and moving on. Uh, Sunfire took a job working for criminals in order to pay off the debt of his cousin Yoshi, who'd become addicted to drugs. He used his powers to blind a group of criminals, frightened a criminal named Ming Yan Yi from the city, but his cousin died from illness anyway. Sunfire burned down the criminals' buildings, likely killing those within, and then returned to his, his cousin's ashes to the boy's mother. Another side note, things got bad for Sunfire again, also not part of the trial, but the day after he'd saved the Prime Minister, he was attacked by Sabretooth and Wildchild, who were trying to recruit him for Weapon X. Sunfire badly burned Sabretooth and then got shot three times, and then he joined X-Corps, went back to working for Japan, got horribly beat up by Titanus. Uh, and again, again, we're just covering all of that very quickly. This guy has a wild history. Sunfire then spent time working with the Silver Samurai to reclaim his family honor by taking criminal holdings and either trying to shut them down or turn them legitimate. When a national report claimed that Sunfire had once worked with Mystique and Rogue in the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants years before, something that Sunfire had no memory of. The report also reminded the public of that time that Sunfire attacked the Capitol building. So Sunfire, fallen from grace, called the Silver Samurai to help him commit seppuku, but Rogue called in just in time and he invited her to Japan. Rogue arrived just after Sunfire had been shot, and she helped stabilize him, yelling about how he'd sent Lady Deathstrike to attack her. 
Rogue touched Sunfire to take his memories, an act that made him furious. And the two of them sought out the Silver Surfer and ended up in a fight with Lady Deathstrike, who stabbed Sunfire and later amputated his legs in the attack. I just said Silver Surfer, Silver Samurai, excuse me. Rogue <laughs> Rogue then learned from a mutant named Blindspot that years before, Tomo had sent Sunfire with Rogue and Mystique to steal the adamantium process from Lord Darkwind, but the memories had been taken from their minds. God, that was a lot of continuity. Justin, thank you for tackling that. Uh, the key issues here, Deathlock 4, New Mutants 94, Avengers West Coast 71, Wolverine Annual 1996, uh, the final story in X-Men Unlimited 34, and then Rogue Volume 3, numbers 7 through 10. <clears throat> okay, Justin, over to you. Real quick, now I'm just thinking about Sunfire and the Silver Surfer hanging out together. And there's there's <laughs> something there, but you know, we'll get to that later, maybe. Um, all right. I guess speaking on behalf of the prosecution. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, when someone shows you who they are, you believe them the first time. Defense would have you believe that Sunfire bears no responsibility for his actions simply because he is following orders. But we know that that historically that is not the case. Beyond that, though, when this happens time and time again, it can no longer be viewed as an accident. In the previous section of the trial, we've already had three different people supposedly trick Sunfire into helping them with their evil schemes. And now we have even more. We have... Kishi Oromosha in one of the um, Marvel present stories that haven't been covered here. We have Yoritomo, you have Dr. Demonicus. And even in Deathlock, Shiro claims to only want a defensive force for Japan. That's his justification for buying weapons from criminals. We've seen throughout history that this is bullshit, Your Honor. And even then, when he finds out that Yoritomo is going to use these weapons in an aggressive force instead, he decides he needs to take some time to meditate. And he doesn't even fully turn his back on Yoritomo until he tries to murder him, right? In this Pacific Overlords story, which is like also, by the way, like Orientalist nonsense, we can put him on trial for being part of that group alone. Like there's this <laughs> hypnotism defense. He talks about how he has a lack of memory, but like that's bullshit as well, Your Honor. When this happens over and over again, you can't just let it, you can't just keep letting him get away with this, right? In later stories, he's consorting with the Silver Samurai, putting civilians at risk with his powers. He has like a small blackface era when he has his zero fluid um, incident. He can't, he's unable to save his cousin because he's too busy like fighting um, gangs to try and pay off his debt. Like he couldn't think of any other way to get the money for this to pay off his cousin's debt. And finally, we've seen in this rogue story that he has a history of working with Mystique, future leader of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Evil is right there in the name, ladies and gentlemen, of the jury. All right. I think the prosecution can rest their case right there. The defense, on the other hand, <clears throat> Your Honor, Shiro Yoshida is a protector. All right. Has he made mistakes? Sure. He is constantly aware of this. He is constantly atoning for his mistakes, trying to better himself. And we've seen in the future that he is able to accomplish this. He is constantly searching for a noble cause to dedicate himself towards. And he's really bad at it, sure. But that doesn't make him evil. It makes him maybe a little bit dumb. 
It makes him young and naive, but we cannot put this man on trial for wanting to believe the best in people, all right? Especially since he was a child, he's become used to this relationship dynamic, almost brainwashed, maybe not literally, but like being raised by his uncle, being told that his like family love is conditional on him completing these like political objectives for his uncle and sure then he falls back into this pattern as an adult with other men but like that's not necessarily his fault you guys right i think it's also like worth keeping in mind that yoritomo knows this right like he talks about how he had to deliberately hide the more evil aspects of his plan from sunfire he admits that sunfire is far too idealistic um, but he needs his prestige and respect as a national hero. Sunfire says in this arc, the Second World War ended nearly five decades ago. You would risk starting a third. This is not someone who is looking to seek war. He is just trying to protect his homeland, something that he's been raised from birth to do. He goes about it in some bad ways, sure. But in the like, the primary purpose of his existence has always been protection. Even when he is part of the Pacific Overlords, all he's really doing is supporting Pele, the goddess of fire who emerges from a volcano and is fighting people. And like, sorry, we can't put this man on trial just because he supports women. All right. That would be very wrong of us to do as well. And you know what? I, too, would participate in an elaborate scheme to get Namor to punch me in the face. All right. And you know what? Speaking of Namor, Namor is the one that recognizes that Sunfire was brainwashed during this time, and he forgives him as well. And Your Honor, we have to look to the wronged parties in this situation and take their lead in terms of how to address the crimes, so alleged crimes, sorry, that have been committed. All right. We... Also, Sunfire goes through so much in this era. Like, Magneto fucks him up and probably doesn't even realize that he does it, right? Like, he's doing magnetic shit all over the world and it fucks him up. But, like, Mag and he's also in his villain era, right? So, like, we're not going to completely fault Magneto for that. But the point is, Sunfire is fucked up. He's trapped, imprisoned, and experimented on by his own government. Wolverine comes to release him and Sunfire still warns him, saying that he might be dangerous. He doesn't want to harm innocents, right? He's always willing to sacrifice himself. He knows that he might die trying to fight off the like giant red Ronin robot that the Japanese government is building. Don't worry about that. But he's always willing to sacrifice himself in the name of protection. After this story, he willingly puts himself in the hands of Department H or sorry, um, like Alpha Flight or whatever um, from Wolverine's suggestion, who should really know better considering what he's been through with the Canadian <laughs> government. Right. So like imagine being so desperate to stop yourself from hurting other people with your powers, that you would willingly put yourself at the mercy of the Marvel 616 Canadian government. That's how much this man cares about not hurting other people. Finally, we get to the rogue storyline, which, which provides like more inter interiority into this character than we get in almost six decades of publication history, arguably until X-Men number two, right? Rogue is also really important as like a mirror and a foil to Shiro as well, because she was also introduced as a villain. She was young. She was heavily influenced by the people that she was raised by, like Mystique, right? Rogue is also kind of dumb and listens to the wrong people sometimes, also easily tricked. That's why they get along so well, right? On the other hand, Rogue was very quickly taken in by the X-Men, supported by them. Shiro was not. He was left to, like, standing over the body of his dead father while the X-Men were like, sorry, we're going to see you later, but, like, good luck or whatever. Is it because Rogue is white and Shiro isn't? Who knows? Anyways, 
everyone knows he tricked you is what even Silver Samurai says about Shiro's Uncle Tomo during this time period, right? Um, and this like further goes to show how much Shiro wants to believe that other people have changed. He wants so badly to believe that his cousin has changed as well. He always wants to believe in the best of people. Real quick, we can also talk about other storylines in this time period. In New Mutants, he's objectively heroic, trying to protect people um, from like drugs entering the water supply, supporting those suffering from addiction. In Uncanny X-Men, he's like also unapologetically heroic in that one. He has some gay moments with Bobby, which is fun as well. And he's like, Fight, he's helping them fight against Mikhail Rasputin. In Sunfire and the Big Hero 6, even though he's got like his weird costume era, he has like a mentor moment with the new character hero. And like it shows that he's like surprisingly good with young people sometimes. All of this to say, I think we've seen time and time again, we've seen in this era and we'll see in the eras going forward, Shiro Yoshida is here to protect people. Just because he hasn't always gone about it the best way doesn't mean we should be prosecuting him for these incidents thank you very much uh that pacific overlord story is real racist also you guys it's a rough one it really is, yeah. <laughs> uh what thoughts and questions do we have from the jury on this section uh steve so um going off of something justin said more so towards the intro part i and including here i love the relationship between rogue and sunfire and justin also did a really good job of um showing the connections like um uh, it, uh, brotherhood, um, rough upbringing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there was one part I really, really liked in Rogue Eight, where uh, Rogue touches him and takes his memories non-consensually. That's pretty important, non-consensually. But uh, the memories go. Uh, it, it goes back to him killing um, him, him killing Tomo, and it just says shame, regret, hatred. But then it just goes to Uncle Tomo scream, and that's something like. It like like Justin said, this is the most depth we've seen with the character, and it's through the lens of Rogue's eyes. Uh, do we have any other comments on this section? Oh, go ahead. Oh yeah, no, I just wanted to say I really love that sequence as well. Like I said, it's such a good look into Shiro's like actual mind and his backstory. It's one of those things where I really wish I could just send those panels to people as like an explanation of Sunfire. But one, he's wearing the costume. Two, it's Rogue seeing herself in Sunfire's place. So it's like this white girl, like learning to fight with a sword from this old Asian man and also like wearing Sunfire's outfit, but like it's still Rogue wearing the outfit. So it's not great to send out of context, but it is a very good sequence. Okay, uh, let's go ahead and vote in this section. Uh, Justin, thank you for your insights and, and uh, Stephen for your thoughts. Uh, Jason, would you like to go first here? Uh, I, I'm like leaning between like a 2.5 and a three. Uh, I mean, I'm going to round up to three if that's the case. <laughs> all, all right. Yeah. Uh, like even though like, uh, there, there, there is a very strong defense that, that makes him very redeemable, but like at the same time, like yeah, he, he's just getting led by all these ill-intended characters uh, it's, it's a pattern still, and you know we're, we're going to see this again in the trial, especially in my trial again later. Um, I mean, there, there, I feel that there has to be some accountability for some of his crimes. Uh, Andrew, and then Trung. Um, so you know, taking it everything that's been said so far, I'm going to look at him as he's a little older now, and so I'm a little harsher now. <laughs> 
Uh, so I would say it's a three for me. Um, he's, you know, clearly displaying his, you know, um, uh, character traits of being impressionable to like a larger cause, being a little lost, hypnosis notwithstanding, which is a really good out. Um, so yeah, I would say a three. We're starting to get very dangerous, and um, you know, clearly he plays the role of supervillain in several of these things. So, you know, um, it's kind of hard to um, escape that. Wrong. Uh, I think I'm leaning actually a little bit towards a two uh, in this one. Um, and I, I think it's mostly because I'm very swayed by the notion that he is mostly a character who is um, like Sunfire's biggest crime is that he's a terrible judge of character constantly all the time. <laughs> and so the fact that he's like a serial accidental henchman to all of the worst people is like, maybe not fully his fault and so maybe his own personal culpability lies in his negligence more so than in his malice so i'm going to two it's a three for me here as well there's a few higher status things uh steve and then justin i was strongly considering a one but trung just convinced me to a two because of like you said just his propensity to become a henchman like please like he is learning to be better morally but please learn to be better in that regard so uh trung you've just swayed me towards a two and justin i'm gonna say a two as well for all the reasons that people have said he's a little bit older now he should know better by now um, I am still inclined to go a little bit easier on him, if only because, like, the thing that's hard to talk about is just, again, in the context of comics, people get reset back to their, so, like, people get reset back to, like, their kind of origin points almost. He's still making gradual progress along the way, but that reset still happens. So, like, it's funny, we talk about him being, like, kind of under the control or, like, being a henchman of all of these characters within the story itself, but he's also just, like, such a he he's such a slave to the narrative as well right the, the control that that has on him is really holding him back but uh yeah so a solid two for me so that gives us a 15 out of 30 we are not out of the racist woods yet but most of the worst stuff is over now so the sections get a little bit easier to describe from here trial point three we are calling famine the assigned jury member here is andrew drillen uh after waking up from his coma Shiro despaired over the loss of his legs until Apocalypse offered to make him whole, though Shiro knew there would be a cost. Transformed by the Celestial Death Seed, Shiro took on a fiery masked appearance, much like his Age of Apocalypse counterpart, as the Horseman Famine, and he was sent to attack the X-Men using his fire powers to make the X-Men believe they were starving? Uh, it's a weird story, a little. The other members of the Four Horsemen are Pestilence, uh, which is Polaris, uh, War, who's a weird little guy named Gazer, and Death, who is Gambit. They also attacked. Sunfire turned against Apocalypse in the end and aided the X-Men in defeating the other Horsemen. After using his own powers of extreme heat to restore Gambit's sanity, uh, fire works weird in this story. <laughs> Sunfire and Gambit attacked the X-Men to liberate Polaris so that they could work together. Uh, this is from X-Men X -Men Volume 2, uh, 182 through 187. Uh, let me turn it over to Andrew. It's so nice to have you here, my friend. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, so uh, I will say this story arc, um, written by Peter Milligan, drawn by Sobzer LaRocca. There's a few guest artists. Uh, doing backup stories but those were the two main creators behind it um th this felt like drugs to read like it felt <laughs> very 
It's a little like Lord of the Flies, where you get all these descriptions that feel like you're sick. You know what I mean? I felt like this was drunk or 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 um, sick X Men comics because um, the way the plot unfolded and the way things just kind of um, happen um, feel a little like they don't make sense or like they're hyper um, uh, they're hyper exaggerated. Um, so it was a it was a little rough to read this. Um, uh, it's it the story arc is called the blood of apocalypse and uh the main part um i'm just gonna jump into prosecution actually let's jump into the three major points because um um you know we want to get through this uh first point uh in the story apocalypse appears at shiro's um, hospital room um and kills clan yoshida people as well as a world famous um a prosthetics expert and offers to restore Sunfire, who says yes when Apocalypse promises, I can make you powerful again. Um, so this is this does not look good, guys. Um, second point. Um, <laughs> second point. As soon as he's deathified, uh, uh, celestial death seedified, um, Sunfire uh, Sunfire flies out and makes everyone hungry as famine with his fire powers until he's taken down by Rogue. Uh, so sorry, I have to go on a little tangent here. Uh, the this this makes no sense. The fire, the whole fire makes you hungry makes no sense. Um, they try to justify it where Emma Frost says something like, "I'm gonna quote it because you know um, this is the this is the reason the story gives you um, the science is beyond anything human I've ever come across. Explosions of light seem to work on the retina, which affect the parts of the brain controlling appetite. Consequently, you feel as though you're hungry." Um, and that's like the story's entire rationale for why when Sunfire flies around the X-Mansion, everyone around gets hungry, including humans and Sentinels. Um, <laughs> uh, but during this entire period, he is, he barely has any dialogue. He has gets into a fight with Rogue. And um, it seems like, you know, he's, he's just, he seems like a, a weapon on the loose. Um, third point for prosecution, Sunfire, um, when he comes to his senses after Emma Frost gives him like a mind um, cure, uh, gets him back to sort of like, uh, I guess, consent. Um, Sunfire kidnaps a deathified gambit, brings him to a Zen temple, tells him that they're a new thing, not a mutant, not a horseman, but something more. And this feels like it's got like a strong megalomaniacal vibe. Um, and this is also where he burns Gambit to his senses. Like, for some reason, burning him will, you know, wake Gambit up. Uh, and then they go on a mission. A whole um, epilogue of the story is where they go on a mission to recruit um, Polaris, uh, who was also a horseman, to his cause. Uh, and when Polaris basically says that she doesn't want to join that, um, he escapes again with Gambit. Um, and, you know, you feel like, okay, so he's found a little bit of purpose for himself here. He's kind of calling the shots at this point. But then at the end of the story, he immediately signs up again with Mr. Sinister. So <laughs> it's like, come on, what are you doing, dude? Um, so that's my prosecution part. Um, in his defense, all right, um, in this storyline, he is a person who is struggling with disability, uh, actually struggling with the trauma of literal amputation. Um, to quote the first line in his introduction, you would have done better to let me die, he says at the beginning. Do you think I want to hobble on plastic legs? Um, 
So in this mental state, you know, even though uh, Apocalypse comes in and kills the, you know, Clan Yashida people and and the prosthetics dude, um, I kind of understand. It's kind of understandable given where he is, this dark place in his life, why he would suddenly just sign up with Apocalypse. Um, second point for defense is um, X-Men 182 and 183. We have backup stories by um, where he's literally chained and legless inside the giant sphinx with apocalypse's face in it um and you know he is basically he still despite this being in this incapacitated moment he goes around um trying to rescue someone who's being tortured thinking i have lost my legs does that make me less of a man how much less would i be if i leave that poor soul to his fate um, so there's there's some like real powerful heroism in there, and you know it's you know it's 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 quite nice as a moment for the character, and I think it speaks to the best in him, right? Um, and my third point of defense, and this is you know I think anyone who reads X Men comics, we've seen so many characters who have been horsemanified by Apocalypse, who've been given the Apocalypse makeover, right? Who hasn't and- been a horseman? <laughs> I can name them, but like, you know, there's just so many people. It's a whole horseman party. Um, now, if you think about it from Angel, Archangel, and so on. And it this group feels like one of the most random um, groups of people to get the apocalypse makeover, uh, which adds to like the weird, sick, drunken feeling of the whole storyline. Um, but I will say that might be part of his defense, you know, just like the hypnosis thing, celestial seed drunkenness, he's maybe not in his right mind. Maybe it's emphasizing the worst parts of him, the arrogant parts that we've seen in the past. Um, so, you know, that, you know, maybe the jury can give him a little leniency on that point. Um, I turned over to you guys now. Uh, excellent, Andrew. Thank you so much. And, uh, had you read this story before? I, I think I might have. And then I just kind of <laughs> laughed it out because it was like, oh, my God, why is this happening? <laughs> what uh, what questions and comments do we have from the jury on the uh, famine section of Sunfire? Steve? So um, going off uh, one of Andrew's later points or last points is like, uh, was he under the right mind? Was he under some sort of influence? Um, he wasn't outright being mind controlled or anything, but I'm gonna put the image up to my camera just so you can see it. Oh, you can't you can't really see it. But it's basically apocalypse by Sunfire's bedside trying to like coax him to join him. And it feels so abusory in the way it's portrayed. It's like you're at your weakest point. But yes, that's the picture, Justin. You're at your weakest point. Come join me. And like so, like you said, Sunfire was dealing with all the trauma of being amputated, so he doesn't have all his mental faculties to ward off any abusers, and it just feels like it's all Apocalypse's evil doing right there, especially with that image that Justin Justin just posted. It's like, join me because of the implication. I mean, modern revelations about Apocalypse aside, whenever he horsifies someone, he just is trying to make his own children. <laughs> <laughs> like come be my kids uh we'll talk about him another time uh do we have any uh any other thoughts or questions on this section um i think everyone's covered it i also agree that like being horse manified by apocalypse especially when like, when like he's trading something that sunfire wants so badly 
um, which is, you know, maybe a little bit problematic from like a disability politics standpoint, I do have to point out. Um, but like within the limited context of the story, like, yeah, Stuntfire really wants his legs back and he, you know, um, Apocalypse is working, Apocalypse is doing his Apocalypse thing, which has gotten tons of people in the past, as other people have mentioned. Um, I just have to shout out one of my favorite unhinged X-Men stories, this bit where like, Gambit and Sunfire are fighting Havoc and Iceman over Polaris, which is, I always call it one of the gayest things I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and vote in this section. Uh, Trung. I'm going to go with the, um, I, I'm, I'm putting about a, a one in this one. Like, I'm very sympathetic to him here. I think, um, I forget who it was. I think it must have been Jay Edidin was the person who, like he mentioned, that in a lot of the discourses over the X-Men in particular, people like to sort of map their politics onto the civil rights movement, but it's a lot more cogent to sort of map those politics onto um, disability discourses. Um, and this is sort of like one of the primary examples of where that kind of politic makes a lot more sense within the context of this particular character. And so like him having suffered this immediately like this immediately um like kind of horrifying body trauma and feeling like his autonomy is taken away from him like both he's he's a character who's like he does not need to be hypnotized in order to trick him into doing the bad thing but also like this is a particularly vulnerable moment for this character in general and so i'm like he's also the first character notably of the horsemenified like stable of this like kind of group of uh mutants to be like oh wait this feels familiar and this feels bad i'm gonna help other people come to this realization as well so i'm gonna i'm gonna put him more like at a one that he ends up back with mr sinister afterwards just like okay i know like it's it's more it's more to do with like him being a little clueless than like actually having bad intent i think so i'm 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 a one he has to pledge himself to some cause uh it's it's a world full of mutants you gotta go somewhere uh it's a one for me as well steve and then justin uh yeah just a one just from the apocalypse going for him at his weakest and his attempts to help others even in his really weak form so it's a one for me um yeah it's a one for me as well he's definitely doing the least actual damage of all the horsemen in this group like he doesn't actually starve anyone he makes people feel hungry and i feel hungry all the time so it's not really like <laughs> the end of the world you guys um, he also tries really hard to save other people. Like as soon as he kind of snaps out of it, he saves Gambit with like a fun little, I read it more as like sexy gay wrestling in the temple there, but you know, uh, definitely both valid interpretations, I think. <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah. In the, uh, in the apocalypse faced, faced Sphinx. God, that's hard to say. Uh, Jason and then Andrew. Uh, that would be one for me as well. I mean, he, I feel like whenever you're a horseman, I, I still feel that you're, you're, somewhat in like mentally influenced by apocalypse like you're you're a pawn still no matter what and uh, sure there there's probably like his, his like his actual consciousness is in there but he there there is a, a sense of control from apocalypse so yeah like i, I don't think it was entirely his fault um, for me, he's a one. It's a one, this one. Um, it's just, there's just too many extenuating circumstances. He's very vulnerable. Um, and 
you know, the story doesn't give much in terms of like exposition or internal um, dialogue, but like what is given is enough to make me feel like, you know, I completely understand why he did the things he did. Um, and yeah, I kind of like root for him to get better from here on. So that's a I 6 like to 30, the lowest score possible. Uh, I interrupted someone. Oh, no, I was just going to say, but like, it's not a huge. I just like that he's trying to save Gazer of all people. Like, who the fuck is Gazer? I don't know. I guarantee Sunfire doesn't know who Gazer is, but he's just like, yes, yeah, got to save him even without legs. So let's jump to trial point four. This is called Marauder. The assigned jury member here is Jason Lowe. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for taking this section. It's great to see you. In the time of desperation after the events of M-Day, with only a few hundred mutants remaining on Earth, Sunfire and Gambit joined the thick roster of the Marauders working for Mr. Sinister, and they were tasked with eliminating all time-traveling, future-seeing mutants in order to stop the X-Men from learning about the prophecies related to the mutant messiah that would soon be born. Sunfire and Gambit attacked Cable, seemingly killing him, then battled the X-Men, with Sunfire facing Cannonball and Iceman. The Marauders soon rushed to find the newborn child, Hope, uh, battling and presumably killing some of the purifiers who were there to kill the baby, and fighting the X-Men who were also there to find her. There were further fights with the X-Men and with Bishop, with Sunfire being particularly harsh toward Bishop during this fight, even wanting to kill him. They kidnapped Hope and returned her to Mr. Sinister, then fought the X-Men again, but the Marauders were soon defeated, and Cable escaped into the time stream with Hope. And very quickly, this covers uh, key issues, X-Men Volume 2, 200 and 201, X-Men Messiah Complex 1, New X-Men 44, X-Men 205, Uncanny X-Men 494, X-Factor 27, New X-Men 46, and finally X-Men 207. It's like when all the uh, titles would just like be continued into the next title. Uh, let's turn it over to Jason. Okay, uh, the defense. Sunfire has made progress from his early appearances coming coming around from not liking his fellow mutants as well as not like not willing to risk his life for to help them, as he said in Giant Size X-Men, to aligning himself with mutants, even if they have poor moral compasses, and, and they're led by Mr. Sinister. Yes, he was misguided again, just as he was under the ill influence of his uncle. But near the end, he protected the future of mutant kind by preventing the assassination of Baby Hope. Sunfire, with the collective efforts of his fellow marauders, took down Bishop, who was on a murderous rage to kill the baby. The baby was later brought into protection of the marauders' home base and. Muir Island. That baby Hope would grow up to be Hope Summers, who would later play a vital role in Krakoa's resurrection process as part of the Five. Without Sunfire's contribution to saving Hope, we would not have the return of important players in the good fight, like Sink, Destiny, Banshee, Husk, Thunder, uh, Thunderbird, hundreds of other mutants, as well as other well-known heroes like Wolverine, Jean Grey, Cyclops, and even Captain America. Okay, now my prosecution. Uh, Sunfire aligned himself with Mr. Sinister, a character who has been consistently sinister from day one up to today, as well as the Marauders, the ones responsible for the mutant massacre and killing of hundreds of Morlocks. Need I say more? Sunfire, a dedicated soldier of 
Sinister was driven to taking down Cable, the protector of mutant kind's hope for a future. Sunfire's intentions were to murder Cable, and when he seemingly murdered Cable, he would move on and attempt to kill one of Cable's new mutant's disciples, uh, Cannonball. This before taking on the X-Men with his fellow marauders. Though one redeemable deed was saving Baby Hope from an assassination, this was under the orders of Mystique disguised as Mr. Sinister. Sunfire is a loyal soldier who would carry out any order by Mr. Sinister. If Mr. Sinister's order was to kill Baby Hope, Sunfire would have gone through it with, with very little remorse. beautifully done that's so fun man thank you so much um one of my questions for you and jason justin let me or excuse me jason let me hear your thoughts first here is he still under the influence of the celestial death seed here so archangel after he stops working for mr sinister still struggles with like the darkness all through his continuity right is that now a part of sunfire is that his motivation here or is he acting of his own choice it's, it's definitely not mentioned in his scenes because like he, he like He's a, a bit player in, in this arc. Um, like, he, he's just another henchman. Uh, so, like, he has very few lines where, you know, like, you, you get that same asshole sunfire, but and then he, he's, he's just in the background fighting. So they don't really explore, like, any, like any of that celestial stuff, unless if it's something that I missed in other issues. One of the things I give him credit for here, too, this is like he just faced the genocide of his people, right? On M-Day, there's only 200 left, and this baby represents the future of mutant kind. She's a resource trying to be grabbed. Maybe he believes that Mr. Sinister is the best availability or possibility for the future of mutants in this era, because he's allied with the Marauders here with a lot of other heroic characters who are also on the team. Uh, do we have any uh, thoughts or uh, questions on this section? Justin? Yeah, I mean, building off of that, so I had a slightly different read on the situation, which is, like, not necessarily a lot of evidence for, um, but, like, and I cannot remember enough of this arc to, like, fully explain it, but my understanding is that Gambit is kind of pulling a long con on Mr. Sinister, right? Like, he's working with Mystique, and he ends up saving the baby or whatever. Like, Shiro and Gambit join the Marauders starting to work for Mr. Sinister together. Like my read is that he knows what's going on and is kind of just there with Gambit. Like mm -hmm. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, yeah. Last arc. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, let's go ahead and vote in this section. And Jason, thank you so much for, uh, for doing that for us. Uh, Andrew, do you want to go first here? Uh, I'm going to put this as a one. I like Justin's reading. I, I kind of agree with it. I will say um, my recollection of the Messiah Complex storyline was just, it was so crazy. Everyone took sides. Everyone was fighting each other. Um, and like, you didn't know what. And besides, he was anti-Bishop. And Bishop is the one who was trying to kill a baby and also shoots Professor X in the head at the end of the whole thing. So... Like I completely, you know, I think I'm I'm on Shiro's side here. I think, you know, he I understand everything he did. And even though he was a bit douchey here or there, but you know, 
it's okay for me. Other point, I wanted to answer the thought about whether he was celestial deathified, death seedified still. Um, post Messiah Complex was Mike Carey's um, X Men Legacy run, and we see Gambit still struggling with the celestial death seed persona. So I assume it's still somewhere in Shiro as well. That's a big um, part of a Caliban story long term too, right? Like the the darkness that is awakened within him. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, beautiful. Thank you. Uh, Trunk. Yeah, I'm going to go with one on this one too, just because like, first of all, I can't fault anybody for not remembering precisely what went down during Messiah Complex because there was a lot happening. I can't... <laughs> Yeah, I don't feel responsible for that. Um, but like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I had more of a, um, more. I, my reading was more aligned with Justin's in that I don't think that he was sincerely working for Mister Sinister, and I think that he was there with his buddy Gambit. I started his this good one. friend Gambit. Yeah, they were fucking <laughs> for sure. Uh, I started this section at a four. You guys talked me down to a one. This is uh, the jury happening in real life. Uh, I was thinking of him as like choosing the evil side at first, but it makes more sense. Uh, Steve and then Justin. Uh, I agree with the whole my vote going down. I was originally at a three for the reasons of another master, and it's Mr. Sinister, and you just <laughs> had that kill your master's speech to Gambit. Originally, I was at a three, but with your points about the Celestial Sea's potential long-term effects, and Justin, I think to your point about Gambit was playing the long con, which is what he was trying to do with Apocalypse, but actually just failed, so I could see it happening for Sinister. Going from those, I would go from a three to a low two. So, yeah, you guys influenced me. You said so many daddies, uh, Justin. <laughs> I would go with the two just on the off chance that he is, in fact, going along with it. Like I said, it's possible that uh, I, I'm leaning towards him just working with Gambit on this one. But, you know, there is still the slight possibility. Um, but, yeah, like long term, the baby didn't die. And um, I don't think he directly killed anyone during Messiah Complex, but who's to say what happened during Messiah Complex, you know? And then, uh, Jason, your vote. Uh, I'd probably say uh, uh, just a two. Um, I mean, yeah, you make a good good point that maybe he could be part of Gambit's long con, but, like, it was not explicitly said. Um, like, it, so... Like you, you, you see Gambit having his moment, and and like where where he is like playing on the other side, whereas like Sunfire is just in the background; he's just fighting. So we we still don't know where he aligns, and I mean we we definitely know he aligns with Mister Sinister. But in the long run, um, yeah, like he he saved. We hope so. Uh, yeah, just just a two as high, my highest rating. Okay, so our last section is then trial point five. That's a nine out of thirty in this section, by the way. Uh, the this section is called inverted. <laughs> this is a crazy story. Uh, and thank you to uh, Steve the G for taking this on. Uh, during his time with the Avengers Unity Squad, Sunfire was one of many mutants who had his personality inverted by a magical spell gone wrong. The mutants during this time united under the rule of Apocalypse, who was actually Genesis, his clone turned evil, and they declared that mutants should rule over humans. Sunfire teamed with Longshot to try to get the American nuclear football codes away from the X-Factor team, and Sunfire unleashed his powers at rare high levels in an attempt to destroy danger. 
Uh, the X-Men later defeated Captain America, then announced publicly that all humans must leave the new mutant homeland in Manhattan or be killed. They then designed a bomb that would kill every non-mutant on Earth. Magneto led a team of inverted supervillains, calling them the New Avengers, to fight the X-Men more than once, and Carnage sacrificed himself to stop the bomb from going off. This is like heroic inverted carnage. It's a weird story. <laughs> In the end, the inversion was canceled out and the X-Men returned to their normal selves. Later, when Hydra took over the United States and mutants were granted their own nation state of New Tian, Sunfire joined Random and Frenzy in fighting against their control and they were defeated by the superior octopus. Uh, we're not talking about his Krakoa era here at the end because there's nothing to put him on trial for. So these issues uh, are Avengers vs. X-Men, Axis 4 through 9, All New X-Factor 16, 1917 and Secret Empire Underground number one. Uh, let me turn it over to Steve. So um, a, a lot of this is straightforward. That's kind of my bias, just like playing out. But I'll, I'll, I'll explain that in a little bit. Um, one thing I do just want to say quickly about this section is it was the Avengers Unity Squad, which you covered kind of in depth on the Havoc trial. Yes. <laughs> so it's it's problematic in that sense where uh, it's 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 Havoc saying, um, don't call me a mutant. So it's problematic in the denial of the identity. Plus, Sunfire is also super tokenized just in this. He doesn't have any meaningful like dialogue. He doesn't have too much meaningful dialogue with any other character. Or uh, So I just wanted to say that. <laughs> For this part, but I I did enjoy reading this because there was just so much going on, uh, just Kang, uh, Apocalypse Twins, just Red Skull, so many villains. But back to the morality and the trial of it all, I'm gonna go with the uh for the defense. I'm gonna go with the it's opposite day defense. <laughs> Basically, just like if they're if they're acting bad. It, because it's an inversion, that means that it's good that's fueling it. And if you want a visual, a vi mental visual, a uh, visual aid to go with it, it's like Into the Spider Verse with Miles Morales when he's trying to like flunk out of that new Brooklyn school and he gets a zero out of one hundred on a truth false quiz. So the teacher just puts a one hundred on there. It's just like no, you got everything wrong, but you're still doing good. So that's what it feels like. It's just like. All the heroes became villains, and like you said, Carnage became a hero. So the defense there is that even if he's doing quote-unquote bad, which he doesn't even do too much and isn't too successful at, uh, it's still being fueled by good. So that's that's my defense right there. Um, and after, after they get reverted to their uh, rightful selves, him, Frenzy, and another person attack like a border between a new mutant state and like Hydra's like uh, Hydra caps Hydra state or whatever and I will say for the defense that um it it like he's only attacking combatants he's attacking at a tactical point everybody that he's attacking knows that like what they're in for so that's just what I'm gonna put as the defense for that um, as far as for the prosecution, I really don't have much. He doesn't really succeed in accomplishing anything bad. Again, it's the opposite day defense. Um, yeah, I I don't really have too much. I, I I would rather prosecute Remender's tokenism of Sunfire than actually prosecuting Sunfire. <laughs> if we're getting superheroic carnage and super evil Sunfire, that defense is actually telling us a lot about how heroic this guy is. <laughs> What's funny is that it's not like even super evil Sunfire because in our other parts, it's not like super heroic Sunfire. It's not super effective. So, so it's like flipping on that other side too. I will say this. If we're inverting the characters, I kind of wish that like 
the opposite would happen with other characters. Like, let's say Storm gets stabbed instead of does the stabbing. Like, Nightcrawler says, God damn, a few times. <laughs> I wish that that factored <laughs> into the... Like, I wish Rogue had a Boston accent. <laughs> if we're uh, already, we might as well go. So let's have everybody just hold their score up this time. Uh, what is your vote on this section? It is a one across the board. It's a unfair magic. So that's another six out of 30. I will do our final calculations really quickly. Uh, that gives him a 31% out uh, on the asshole scale, which is pretty low. Uh, that's kind of what I expected for this game, maybe a little higher. But uh, what a genuine delight to explore this character. You guys have provided me with thoughts and insights and experiences uh, that will change my understanding of him forever. And I will be just writing the vibe of this conversation for a long time. Uh, as we're uh, getting ready to wrap up, I would love to hear any of your final thoughts on Sunfire or what maybe changed your perspective about him today. Uh, as each of us are talking, if you want to let us know where we can find you online as well and what you might like to plug, given that we're going to put this out at the end of uh, November. Uh, so final thoughts on Sunfire. Uh, where we can find you, and then uh, anything you'd like to plug. Uh, Jason, do you want to go first? Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's... it's. I, I'm just glad that we can celebrate Sunfire now. Um, free of evil influences, knock on wood, <laughs> until... Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing his next future adventures hopefully not mind controlled or hypnotized and 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 you know we we get to explore more of of who he is his relationships his past um and what gets him going besides just a sense of putting a mission and 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 being committed to that mission um yeah cuz that that's you know we we've seen a lot of those stories and i i wish we we get to see more of him out of that um yeah uh you can follow me on uh instagram uh jason low makes comics i will have um um uh, a howard the duck story and howard the duck issue number one coming out late november where we do a, a what if or a what if Howard the Duck joins the X-Men. And uh, the week after that, it is uh, the first issue of The Century, which I write, and Luigi Zagaria draws, and he's, like, it's this, I'm really proud of, the, of this book. It's, it's gonna look amazing, and I hope everyone enjoys this. You're a phenomenal writer, my friend. It's so great to see you, and I'm so happy about all the things you've got going on. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Steve. Um, this was my first time ever reading a character from like front to back and with Sunfire hit like his progression from his progression was very clear when read through that context. So I really, really love that about him. I loved seeing like where his arrogance kept him arrogance and systemic, whatever kept him and then his identity and now his, uh, his search for his identity and now where he is at Krakoa. So I really loved seeing that upwards journey trending upwards. Um, and also, I really loved how the relationships with Rogue and Gambit were really fleshed out. Because as somebody who was a fan of the X-Men but never read in a Sunfire, I never really knew about those. But um, I, I really loved seeing those interpersonal relationships play out because they did not play out in Uncanny Avengers. <laughs> 
where can people find you? Um, mostly you can't <laughs> because I'm not too active online. <laughs> but I am on Instagram at Steve DG. Uh, if you find my Twitter, that's me being my worst person. So have fun. <laughs> I'll let you search for that yourself. <laughs> Uh, it's great to see great. you, man. Uh, it really, really, truly. It was great to meet you in person. It's great to have you on the show. I can't wait to hang out again soon. Uh, Trump. Hi. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, we didn't get to talk a lot about his relationships very much. And I'm fascinated by his like gay read. I love that so, so much. Because um, in the broader context of this character coming out of this sort of like um, flag suit background for another nationalist, um, for like a, a different nation. Um, I find that he's in this unenviable position where like, it's sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't in terms of the ways in which he's represented, because for a long time, a lot of the, um, uh, the visual lexicon that's used to convey, um, competing empires, is rooted in misogyny, right? And so there's a lot of like, oh, like he has no romantic interests. And so he must be like, he he's sort of like this, like the, um, uh, I guess the, the imperial context for that is like this, the nation sort of experiences like a cultural castration. And so kind of feminizing him or kind of making him um, just devoid of sexual interest is sort of in line with a lot of like Western propaganda about like the like nefarious scheming East and so this character sort of like occupies this really strange space but that that reading of it also leaves out a lot of like like what happens if like he's a queer character and i love that kind of being able to dialogue with like both that history of imperialism and also to sort of like push back on the reasons why those were effective in the first place is so wonderful and so being able to kind of see his character moments and to sort of read between the lines with him is a particularly complicated sort of joy so i hope we get to explore more of that in the future with sunfire i'm excited to see where he goes um i can be found basically everywhere on the internet at trungles t-r-u-n-g-l-e-s um, I'm most active on Blue Sky now, I think. But yeah, I'm on Instagram and Twitter too. Uh, fabulous. And do you want to plug anything? Uh, no, I don't really have anything. Like, I don't have any projects that are coming up. Like, I've been working on a graphic novel for a very long time. Um, my first graphic novel came out in 2020 called The Magic Fish, and people seem to like that one. And I'm working on a second one. And I, yeah, have been doing some shorter projects in between here and there, but I can't recall any of them right now because I'm exhausted <laughs> from... Uh my husband and I had the recent uh, delightful opportunity to have dinner with Trung and his husband. It was so oh, yeah. good to meet you guys. I can't wait to hang out again. Yeah, yeah, that was super fun. Let's do it again. Thanks, Trung. Uh, over to Justin. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, that was beautifully said, Trung. I could also talk about Gay Sunfire for another two and a half hours, but we are probably cutting it a little bit close right now. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know what to say. After like the third episode, talking specifically about this character, I feel like I'm a little bit set in my ways, but I was surprised by how many new reads I was able to hear um, on this episode. So thank you all for that. Um, yeah, in terms of Sunfire, I... I just, it's amazing to see sort of the progress that he's had over the decades. It's really, it's really, it's really nice to see. Um, it gives me, reading his entire publication history gives me a lot, has given me, I think, a lot of perspective on comic books and fictional characters journey throughout comic books. 
Like, I think so often there's an impulse with, like, your favorite characters or whatever to, like, always constantly see them on page at all times. You know, like, where's Sunfire? He hasn't shown up in an issue for X, Y, Z amount of time. Um, And while, you know, that's, you know, a form of passion in its own way, I also think that, like, going through this publication history really gives you a sense of, like, these characters have been around for decades. They'll be around for decades longer. You know, you got to play the long game. Sunfire has dipped out of publication history for, like, five years at a time, and he's doing great now. Um, so it's really nice to have that perspective on it as well. Um, oh, I'm, uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Justin's Parked. Um, nothing to plug personally, uh, but the video game studio that I work at, Kitten Cup Studio, our first game, Pico, like, uh, spelled like Orange Pico T, is in early access right now. It's available on Steam for PC and Mac. Um, it is sort of a cross between, like, it's, sorry, uh, it, let me start that again real quick. It is a cat-themed tea-making simulation game, so it's got sort of like a cross between Cooking Mama with the tea-making mechanics and Animal Crossing with the way that you like interact with the cat villagers of this town and make tea for them. Uh, so that's on Steam if you want to check it out. Cute! <laughs> Thank you so much for not only coming today, but helping me with the prep on this, Justin. I really appreciated your voice and insights. Uh, and then Andrew. Um, I definitely enjoyed the focus on this character. Um, as I said at the beginning, I, he never really rated with me before. He was sort of on the sidelines for me. But doing this exercise of kind of just isolating him from X-Men history uh, and looking at the narrative that emerges from that, the Ur narrative, um, you know, it it makes me like him so much more. Um, uh, speaking, everything Trung said, um, I agree with, especially the part about, like, I'm curious about the gay read. It isn't explicit at all for me in the in everything we've read so far, but there's definitely a space for the character to go in that direction. And as a gay Asian man, I kind of selfishly want to see what happens if he <laughs> goes there. It would definitely add a lot of like nice um, friction with all the other attributes we've seen from him so far. Um, so yeah, I think Sunfire's now got you know, looking at everything, he's got a pretty good foundation for some creative team to come in and tell some really exciting stories with him. So I'm curious to see where he goes from here. Um, and, you know, hopefully someone can do that. Trung, maybe you can do that. <laughs> um, uh, you can find me online at, uh, I'm most active on Instagram. Um, uh, it's Andrew Drillon on Instagram. I'm also, I also have a YouTube channel, Comic Booker. It's about my journey as a comics creator and like what that's like, the good and the bad. Um, so check it out on YouTube. Um, coming up December 12 is going to be my third DC project. It's a holiday special. It's in an 80-page um, Merry Mayhem spectacular called Twas the Might Before Christmas. Um, so check that out on December 12. And I'm also working on my own personal um, graphic novel set in the Philippines. First issue is already out. It's called Secret Heart Attack. Um, it's on my website. It's a, it's a very meta story about a comics creator who falls into his own, you know, creations and, you know, what happens between the two. Sort of like Flex Mentalo. Um, but yeah, uh, check that out. And thank you so much for having me. Uh, so great to see you. And I'm so happy you and Josh are working together. That's going to be exciting. I'm recording with Josh and Levi later this week. Uh, so I will, uh, I'll, I'll be sure to pass on my happiness for him. Uh, so uh, lastly, I'm going to get sentimental for a brief moment. This show is uniquely me in a number of ways. I'm a therapist and a comic book nerd. And the ability to balance social justice-based issues in this nerdy universe space that I'm occupying 
feels like such a wonderful professional accomplishment. If you go back to the early episodes of my show, whenever a character of color would show up, I would panic because I would worry about inviting guests of color to come talk about the character of color because I don't want them to feel like I'm only inviting them on to talk about diverse. Like, and all of you, all of us have hung out multiple times talking about all kinds of things. But uh, I'm always especially sensitive when I'm asking a diverse panel to come on to talk about a diverse character. We've been able to have conversations about ableism and mental illness in... Uh, uh, in female characters and sexual assault. This discussion, uh, the analytical mind and the ability to do research and to look at the character and the creators and the times things were made in and to hear all of your insight uh, and just the sense of safety and trust you had in today's show. I just I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for contributing to this wonderful space. I, uh, I'm, I'm going to be glowing about this all night. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, I finally fucking shut down my Twitter this week. I'm done. I can't do it anymore. They started botting me and now I'm finished. So you can find me on Instagram at, uh, at GrahamMalkin underscore Lane, where we're posting regular content. Uh, I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but the five of you here in this room are welcome to add me. Uh, the next episode immediately coming out after this on the main show is going to be Amazing Adventures number nine, which is a crazy early 70s Magneto story. Uh, and I got to interview the incredible artist uh, CF Villa. So come and check that out. Uh, thank you everybody so much for uh, having this uh, lovely time with me today. This is a wonderful evening. Uh, we'll see you back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Elkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Elkin Lane.